Hello. How are you now? Oh, not bad. And you? Oh, Don. I tried to do too much this morning. And clearly, oh. clearly. So, you know, yeah. I mean, so so any you 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 talk about ejecting um, from meetings on occasion, and it always makes me think of uh, somebody ejecting out of an aircraft, or in the case of the text I just sent you, uh, toilet seat. Off a toilet seat. Yeah, yeah. One, well, and sometimes I, I that's that's exactly it. Um, I try, I'm trying, I'm trying desperately. <laughs> Wait, no, 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 that wasn't exactly it. It's, it's sometimes it's exactly it. Uh, <laughs> not, not this time, not this time. I, so, so that would be awkward having uh, a conversation with your department chair while you were on the toilet. It would be, it would be awkward. I mean, unless it was a text uh, chat, um, right. which I, I mean, who knows? Totally and, yeah. Right, right. And I can't say at, at this point, cause I, I've, I've had so many text chats in so many places. I can't say whether I've done that or not. I don't like I, I, I truthfully don't know. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if, if, if uh, you know, somehow there were, um, you know, there were tapes of me uh, <laughs> somewhere uh, and that, that people if, if I got into if I got into politics, for instance, and there were tapes of me um, and someone said, oh, we have this tape of you uh, texting people on the toilet. Um, and, and do you remember this uh, specific conversation? Uh, I, I that would not surprise me at all. <laughs> That, that, that adds a, a nuance to the to the um, uh, to the expression P tape. It does. It does. It does. That's that's where I was going. I so I had, I I had three things today that mm. I wanted to do before I started to talk to you, mm. um, and and only um, uh, only two of the well no only one of them related to show prep, um, and and so so here's the here are the three things. Um, mm. No, number one, so this afternoon I'm doing a uh, – I'm a guest. I'm a guest lecturer in uh, my friend's class, uh, Chris Gunter. Um, you may know him from, from Twitter uh, as uh, at Vegetable Doc. Um, he's, he's friends with, with a friend of ours, a uh, friend of the pods, uh, um, uh, Michelle Daniluk. Uh, they know each other from the uh, readiness review uh, uh, team. I think that's what the official thing is called, but the – uh, NASDA, the National Association of State Agriculture Directors Association, a, um, I don't know exactly what it, what it stands for, but but Michelle and, and Chris have um, met up uh, a few years ago and have been working together um, on getting uh, pro- produce farmers ready for um, uh, visits from FDA and inspections. Uh, anyway, so Chris Chris teaches this class on horticulture things where they grow a bunch of things and then they um, and talk about the food safety aspect of it. They talk about uh, marketing. And so he asked me today, well, he asked me a while ago, um, but he asked me to come to his class today and, and talk about um, value-added produce and where, you know, where does that fit in from a regulation standpoint. Um, and, and he and I, a while ago, had planned to do this in our, in our teaching and, and research kitchens. Um, but, uh, they, those, uh, research kitchens got triple booked and, and his class is too large. And, and so anyway, we're going to, um, his classroom, but the two things that I needed to do this morning, um, related to his class were, uh, was, uh, go to a grocery store and purchase some Napa cabbage. And I was reminded this is Napa as in the style of cabbage. And I'm going to, that little Foley there, that's uh, Napa cabbage. In a uh, Ziploc wait, bag. Wait, 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 one more time. We'll do it one more time. 
think you, I, I think you're right. I think that is Napa cabbage, Ben. Yeah, yeah, no. it's Napa cabbage. Can you feel? <laughs> you can hear it. Can you feel it? Can you? <laughs> oh yeah, it yeah. definitely. Well, it's it sounds like Napa cabbage. It is. It's Napa cabbage in a Ziploc bag. Um, and so here's the second thing that I needed to do because we're going to make kimchi uh, or at least start kimchi uh, in, in Chris's class this afternoon. So I needed to take, get the Napa cabbage that I had this morning and I had to slice it up and salt it. Um, and so, so that's, that, that was like all, all in the, in the plans had it, had it all set. We were, we were going to be done ready for me to, to come upstairs and report, record a podcast. Um, and then, uh, and then I got talking to people. Um, uh, so, but, so those are the two things that I did do. Um, and, and I want to talk about kimchi, um, a little bit later. Cause it's, it, it's some, it's like one of my current fascinations. Um, and, uh, the third thing I was going to do. I, I, as I was driving here, I was thinking when I get to when I get to campus, I'm gonna get a piece of paper, and I'm gonna stick um, a food safety talk sticker on the top of it, kind of like it's letterhead, and uh-huh. then I, and then I'm gonna write in a big thick sharpie marker <laughs> a whole bunch of notes. <laughs> Uh, and then text that to you and then yeah. tweet it about like getting ready for the podcast and, and just have things like kimchi, kimchi, must talk about kimchi um, and and other uh, other funny items. Um, yeah, you should. And, and whatever you do, the most important thing you should write um, at the top of the list twice. Twice. That's what I see. Yeah, that's right. Kimchi, kimchi. <laughs> <laughs> but I didn't do that, and I thought I would just tell you about it instead of. It's uh, almost as funny as if you'd actually done it. Right, right. It's it's an, it's an it's a it's an audio joke as opposed to a visual joke. Um, so so anyway, that yeah, so it put me a little bit behind, and and uh, I'm sorry. Um, and yeah, you. I know you come to expect me to be late, uh, but I do really try not to be late. <laughs> uh, a, a lot. Oh, I know you try, Ben. <laughs> I'm just not very good at it's not like, being late. It's like. It's like that that Seinfeld bit, you know. Yes, we, you're good at taking the reservation. Yes, you're just not good at keeping the reservation. <laughs> That's it. It's part of it. It's it's part of it. So so anyway, I have I have two large Ziploc bags of rinsed and salted um, Napa, and 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 so 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 this I, I've been making kimchi, um, and it's not because. I particularly like kimchi. It's not that I don't like kimchi. It's just not something that I'm. I'm like. I wish I liked it more. That I could use it like in you know as a as a side dish to to things I'm eating in my normal everyday life. But I'm not. I'm, I don't really. Um, it doesn't. It's a, such a an, um, a a strong taste that it doesn't always go with the other things that I'm eating. Are you? Do you what, what's your what's your kimchi? What's your kimchi thoughts? Oh, um, you know, well, let's, 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 let's back it up. Uh, cabbage. Okay. Yes, uh, yes. I like, I like cabbage. Um, I like, I like, uh, dishes made with cabbage. Um, many, many dishes made with cabbage. Uh, <laughs> all the best dishes. The best, uh, many people are talking dishes. about great dishes that are made of cabbage. Uh, <laughs> um, Kristen, uh, Kristen makes a, um, uh, Asian slaw salad thing with, with cabbage. That's, that's fantastic. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm okay on kimchi. I'll, I'll eat some kimchi, especially if I'm having other, uh, Korean food, but it's not, it's not something that I particularly seek out. Um, but, but I, but I mean, I'm a big, a big fan of cabbage in general. Yeah. See, I'm that the cabbage. So the part that I like about kimchi is that it's not cabbagey. 
Like, like <laughs> there's cabbage in it, but it's not a, 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 I don't know, a strong cabbage taste. There's salt and there's these great red, you know, red pepper flavors. And then it gets tangy from, from the fermentation. I like all of that. The cabbage is just the substrate for it for me. Um, and I, I've never really liked coleslaw. Um, you know, every once in a while we'll, we'll do like, um, like, like street tacos with, with some sliced cabbage. And, and it's like, I could have, um, a, 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 you know, a, a, a quarter of an ounce of cabbage on my taco. And that'd be, that'd be more than enough, uh, for my, for my meal. Like it, it adds a little crunch. Um, but I have been like making cabbage because, um, something else that was going to go on my list of things to talk to you about today was something that we, that, um, I did, uh, or as part of a team that, that, um, is, you know, we had, I had an event, uh, this week where we, we made, I made some cabbage or made some cabbage, made some kimchi, um, uh, a week ago. And, um, we, we are, my, my department is paired up with, um, the applied ecology department as a, as a place for us to do, um, look for collaborations, you know, like a lot of, you know, a lot of, a lot of things are about collaborations, uh, in, in the academic world and trying to find people that, um, that you might not work with and, and talk about things and, and, um, you know, find some, some synergies. That's a, that's a good, uh, um, administrator talk word. Um, but, but like, you know, maybe because we, there's a whole bunch of, um, uh, academics here, we, we get in our, our own little circle and we don't talk to each other. So, so anyway, um, my department head and uh, the applied ecology uh, department head, um, uh, his name is uh, Derek, Derek Aday. Um, the, uh, the two of them uh, were, were talking and thought that there might be some, some uh, cross-pollination, uh, I guess, uh, of the work that we do based on they do a lot of work in, like, diversity of, of species, um, uh, macrobiology, microbiology, um, looking at things uh, from a, a system standpoint, um, and and one of the the individuals in in the applied ecology department is um, is a guy named uh, Ben Redding. He does a lot of work in fish, um, and uh, specifically uh, uh, does a lot of work in something uh, a fish that I wasn't familiar with, uh, striped bass, which is like a, a traditional like fish that was around, uh, you know, North Carolina for, for a long, long time. And it was part of colonization. So there's a lot of history of this fish anyway. So the idea was, um, to get our, our departments together and, and use our strengths and use the things that we do to put together, um, kind of an event to showcase the science that we're doing, um, the extension outreach that we're doing, um, and, and, and using our, our skill sets, um, to, 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 I guess, promote what we, what we do as part of like a fundraiser idea, um, which is, which is cool. And, and it's a, it's a science communication, um, uh, you know, event and it's small. Um, so what, so what we did this week is, was kind of a dress rehearsal of what we are going to do, um, going forward. And, uh, we, uh, a, a couple of months ago, um, Carolyn Dunn, my department had, uh, developed some recipes, uh, all based on this, uh, striped bass. Um, we, uh, you know, tested a few things and, and, you know, one of the, one of the dishes called for kimchi, uh, as a, um, uh, not as a side, but as a, as a top to, uh, some fish cakes. And, uh, and so we, we, you know, we, 
we were talking about it. And I was like, you know, I could make some kimchi. I've never, I've done it once, um, just to learn how to how to do it. And I, you know, ha- tasted it and gave it away. And I didn't really wasn't my thing. Um, but over the last uh, couple of months, I made a lot more kimchi. And so, uh, it, and and I'm and I can't remember if I've told you know talked too much about this on on the podcast, but we we made a, a dry run of this kimchi, and I was testing it every day, um, and it was based on a um, recipe that Colorado State um, created, and I'll uh, send it to you for for show notes. But I was testing it not for taste, but I was testing the pH of it because it you know kimchi is one of these dishes that. Um, you know, it's a it's a natural fermentation. There's no starter. You're basically using salt to select for lactobacillus in the in the cabbage and in other ingredients, um, and then fermenting it um, at, at you know to get it going quickly. Uh, fermenting it at room temperature for um, for a little bit, uh, and then um, you know putting it uh, in the refri- in the refrigerator to, to store it. So so anyway, I, I made a bunch of stuff, tested it. Played around with this, test, te- you know, tested a bunch of pH, made it for this event. The event went was on Tuesday night. It went really, really great. And then when Chris Gunter was talking to me about what we might want to do for his class, I was like, you know, I just made a bunch of kimchi. Let's do that again. So that's that's my kimchi story. That's why I have all this cabbage that's salting um, for the Got next it. six hours. Uh, now, and is, what, yeah, is, isn't isn't kimchi one of the things that you make in your class? Uh, so we we don't because okay. we talk a lot about it. Um, because it takes because too long. The, yeah, it yeah. takes too long. No, and and so yeah, the the class that you're referring to is the um, the variance uh, uh, class where we teach uh, local and state health regulators and the industry about um, about variances and fermentation is one of the things that we talk about a lot. But yeah, because the process so so making kimchi as as I've I've now done it a bunch of times, um, it, it it takes you know um, about half an hour or so to prep. Um, the cabbage to get it salted. You have to dip it in in some salt water to, um, and then you you I basically I've got um, half a cup of uh, of uh, salt in uh, in these bags, and, and it's now just going to sit here, and I'm going to massage it a little bit, not not with my microphone on uh, for the, for the little, next little while, but I'm going to move it around and make sure that the salt is is like breaking down some of these um, uh, you know some of the the cabbage cell walls. And then, so you do that, and then you rinse it, and then um, it, you combine sort of this this kimchi paste and, and some Asian pear and um, some uh, uh, green onions uh, and daikon radish, uh, and then you got to let it sit for a while. So it it's you know we we ha- we've decided not to to do that. We use uh, yogurt, which is a way quicker that's, fermentation. That's right. I knew yeah. you did a fir- some sort of fermentation. Thing. Yeah, it's yogurt that you do, right? Yeah. We- yeah, because it's it's easier to do in a in a two day class or right, just exactly. yeah more practical. But I'd like I mean I like this now I'm, I'm now I'm making it all the time. I like the I like the story of making kimchi. I wish I liked eating kimchi as much as I like the story of making it. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, and it's like like you said, it's not it's not it's not bad. It's just not my um, it's not something that I'm gonna eat every day. And I wish yeah. and I wish it was. Um, yeah. So so that's where. Um, you know that that's where we are uh, uh, today. Um, the the event that I that I spoke about went really well. We got a lot of great feedback from the folks that we invited, um, and then we're gonna we're gonna do more of these. Maybe you know uh, I don't know two or three times a year or something like that, and invite people in. And and, and um, uh, my my colleague uh, Ben Redding talked about 
the science of raising um, and, and breeding striped bass. And, and then I talked about food safety and, and Carolyn talked about the culinary aspects uh, of, of developing recipes and we showcase what we do in, in our, in our kitchens. And, and so the idea is, is really just to get people excited and uh, about the things that we do in our college. Um, but also I, I didn't know, you know, it, from that, sort of synergy cross-pollination of, uh, of ideas. Um, you know, just as a, as a small group, we thought about a whole bunch of things that we could, we could do together just by putting something on as, uh, you know, that, that was, it was a lot of work to, to put it on, but it, um, you know, if, if it makes these collaborations that, that makes sense, then, then it's all worth it. Yeah. And, you know, and that's, that, that is something that's, that's a unique, uh, about being at a university is you can find people that maybe are, are you wouldn't think you have something in common with, but it turns out you do. Uh, and cause we all do such sort of very specialized and, and different things. Um, you know, you, yeah, you might think that within, let's say within a food science department, you would find collaborations and you do, but, but looking outside of your department and especially, especially I would think a department like yours, which is very diverse. And, and I've got to imagine the applied ecology department is also very uh, very diverse, right? Um, you know, a lot of people going, doing, going in a lot of different directions and, and trying to find that commonality between the two is, uh, yeah, that, that, it sounds, it sounds interesting. Yeah. It's, it, you know, I, I don't know. You, you probably can think about this, um, thinking about your, your career and, and where you're, where you're at and where you were at As for me early on, I really, um, you know, look to stick to the things that I knew that I was really comfortable with and, and did a lot of work in fresh produce. Cause I had a bunch of experience in that before, um, I, I started this, you know, this job. Um, and, and then I, you know, created, I guess a little bit of a niche of the things that I, that I like, that I have, uh, you know, skills for and have a lot of passion for around consumer food safety. And, and, and there's always these like little collaborations. They're, they're more natural. Like, you know, I, I've worked really closely with Leanne Jacobs over the last six or seven years on, on the microbiology side and Sophie Cathario, um, as well, where, where I don't, I don't have a laboratory. Um, but I'm, I'm, you know, I spent a lot of time in the field or, or now, you know, in our, in our sort of field kitchens, I guess. Um, and and then I guess like I, what I've found is I, I've gotten more comfortable as I as I've been later on in my career that I'm not as worried about um, you know the the next the next big grant or um, you know uh, uh, jumping down um, uh, I don't know, going down paths that that uh, may be more lucrative from a funding standpoint but not not something that I'm like super passionate about, or I want to, you know, want to do, I do say yes to a lot of things, but, um, but I, you know, over the last couple of years, I've kind of stepped back and thought more about, well, who are cool people that I want to work with and where are the, like, where actually could we, could we work together? And, and so there's a couple folks in the applied ecology, um, department who I've, you know, one, uh, one guy who I've I mentioned uh, on the podcast before a guy named Rob Dunn, who does, um, a lot of you know, a lot of diversity work in you know biological diversity, um, and you know he looked at uh, you know um, pathogens and belly buttons, um, <laughs> or not pathogens, sorry, uh, microbes and belly buttons, and just looking at the geographic distribution, you know, like sent out swabs to you know thousands of people throughout the world. And said, okay, um, let's see if, if we can map out specific, you know, geographic 
um, uh, species and are there age differences and, in, in, you know, uh, you know it, of a different age as a matter and, and just to get a sense of what that diversity is. And he's done a b- bunch of work with sourdough, um, that w- a very similar, like just getting people to send him um, their sourdough starter cultures. And and there's a lot of like we he and I have had lunch a bunch of times in the last couple of years where um, there's this. You know, I, I'm I'm really interested in that, and he's interested in the food safety, and we just haven't been able to make it click on on where where it all fits together, and, and we both have a lot of interest in citizen science, um, and so you know he he talked uh, he, he told me about um, collecting swabs of cutting boards, uh, and and so he's got a, a sort of a bunch of microbe data, nothing that's you know specific to. Um, uh, to pathogens, but like, you know, do, do cutting boards in certain parts of the U S have different, um, you know, microflora and why? And, and so questions like that. Um, and then he and I have been, uh, working together on, on a little project that, that we hope turns into something big on, um, like he, uh, ancient or uh, maybe ancient's not even the right word, but, but very old, recipes for traditional foods and looking at the spices that are in, included in those and, and do those spices have a role in preservation and what's the role. And so we're, we're, we're playing around with, with a few things there where, um, we're, you know, where we're just investigating that. Um, but you know, you mentioned that natural collaboration, one that, that as I've been, so as I'm thinking more about these things that I'm interested in and where we could tell cool science stories, right? Like that's, that's the goal for me. Um, and, and develop, um, you know, d- develop information that can be used to um, to inform what we do in extension, but but also highlight here's here's the scientific process of of, of multidisciplinary stuff. One thing came up um, when when I, and this is one that um, is maybe a very unnatural collaboration, but I'll I'll show you where where it fits in a second. I have a I have a friend um, who is here at NC State. Um, who is a, a professor of psychology, and I'm going to read her. Her name's uh, Sarah Damaray. Um, she's also from Canada, uh, also went to the University of Guelph, but we um, we didn't know each other there. Um, but she does uh, focuses on the assessment and treatment of risks and needs associated with criminal behavior, criminal behavior, uh, interpersonal violence, and terrorism. And and we you know we we know each other just through a couple of uh, of common friends. But um, Natalie Seymour, uh, who works for me, um, she and I were sitting around thinking about stuff that we might want to do when it comes to food defense, especially in schools, because it's something that that our school system um, has asked us for uh, additional training on. Not, you know, not, I don't, you know, I don't want to send the the vibe out that there's a whole bunch of terrorism going on in schools, but, you know, it's it's a good, it's a good time on like, what are we, are we protecting school food systems well enough and where would we start? And so Natalie and I were talking about it. I was like, you know, I know somebody, I know somebody who gets like, who literally studies like criminal minds and, and behaviors and, and terrorism. And so, so Sarah and Natalie and I are going to go talk about some collaboration stuff on, and she, you know, I kind of wrote something quick on, you know, there, there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of focus on intentional adulteration. There's, there's been, you know, it's not just a handful of, of, of incidents or, or, or recalls. Um, but you know, it's, it's adjacent to the world of microbial food safety. Um, and you know, would you want to go chat about this sometime? Cause there might be some things that you're, that, that we have common interest in. She's like, yeah, let's go do this. 
And so, so anyway, as I get further into my career, those are the things that I'm like, I'm, I'm enjoying in a, in a different way that I didn't feel like I had time or space to, to do, um, earlier on. Yeah. And, and I, and it, that is the nice thing about, about tenure is that it gives you that freedom to kind of take a breath and say, okay, well, what do I want to do? Right? Like what's something interesting that I can do that I want to do that I don't have to worry about getting an immediate payback. Like I don't have to worry about chasing the next grant or getting the next publication. Yeah. I mean, yes, I do want to get grants and I want to write publications, but, but it's a matter of like, how can I do that in a way that's, that's, that's cool and interesting. So, yeah. 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 And, and, and who knows, like maybe nothing's going to come out of it. Right. Like, like it, um, or, or maybe something awesome will, uh, maybe it's, maybe it's the whole like new direction of, uh, of things that I do and, and people that I collaborate with. Um, that, that I think that is, that's always been the draw to me, um, of the academic world. And sometimes when I'm like reconciling receipts for my P card, um, I forget about that and, and think mm-hmm. they're, you know, they're just administrative things that get in the way. But this is the kind of cool stuff that, you know, it's not a, you know, if I can get to that, if I, if I need to do that for 10% of the time to get to the 90% of the time, um, where I get to do really fun things, um, then, then I'm real, you know, I mean, I, I, it's all, it's all worth it. I had, um, because I'm, I'm on a, like, just, you know, coffee rant here. Um, I had a conversation. With my, <laughs> I had noticed. You had noticed. Uh, I had a conversation. I'm going to keep going. I had a conversation with my, with, with one of my kids last night about, cause I was telling him about, you know, going to this class and, and teaching. Um, and, and he, you know, he's 11. So this is, this is Jack, my, my older son. We, we spent a lot of time. Like one of the things that I really love about coaching hockey is, for my kids, um, is that I get to spend a lot of time in the car with them going to and from places where we listen to music or we listen to a podcast or we talk like we just get to do, I get to spend a lot of time with them on the way and on the way back from these, from these things. And so as we were coming home from, uh, from his practice last night, I was telling him about what I was going to do today and that I was going to make kimchi and, and explain about kimchi and all that kind of stuff. And he said, he's like, you know, I, and he's, he's, I'll, I'll paraphrase this, but he seems really astute sometimes and sometimes not so much at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was one of the times where I, I could see him like thinking through something. He's like, you know, I, I have, I know a lot, a lot of people go to offices for their jobs. And you have an office and you go to your office for your job, but you really don't spend a lot of time in your office. You're, you're doing other things. You know, you, you might be in a classroom or you might be um, in kitchens or you might be, you know, go to your office and then you're traveling to a restaurant or you're traveling around and talking to people. And he said, it just doesn't seem like a normal job. <laughs> uh, and it's true. It's yep. true. He also said, um, as part of this conversation, he goes, and you spend a lot of time in the dorms. And I was like, I do not spend any time in the dorms. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> and he goes, well, I mean, like the classrooms where there's do- where, where there's dorms, you know, dorms he's, have he's, classrooms. Yeah. yeah. He's a little, he's a little confused. He's a little bit confused about the different places at a university. <laughs> right. 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 Yeah. Right. But it, but it's true. I don't, I mean, I, we, we don't really have normal types of jobs. I mean, I don't know. I, and I guess, I don't know, maybe, maybe I, I've never had another job uh, to really compare it to, but, but other people that I, um, that I, that I play hockey with or, or hang out with because our kids are the same age. Um, I, you know, I, it's, it's, it is, it's difficult to explain what, our, what our days are like, I think. Um, well, and it, and it's, and it's brought home to me <clears throat> every time I get a request that sounds something like, well, let's schedule a meeting. Um, 
what day of the week is good for you? And right. it's like, well, it depends upon which week. Right. Because every week is different, right? So it's not like I have free time every Monday afternoon, right? Because I have a regular teaching schedule. And that's the other thing too. I think people get confused about like, what is a, uh, what does a professor do? Right. Uh, and a professor teaches in a class, right. And they might have a laboratory if you, if you're, if you broaden your view a little bit, but like, we don't have normal jobs in that. Yeah. Where our classroom is the world, right. I mean, whether it's a restaurant or a food processing plant or a, ki a kitchen, uh, you know, a simulated kitchen or a real kitchen. Um, you know, or, or the field, right. A field, you know, growing produce or, you know, we, neither of us do any work with, uh, with beef, but, but if, or, or, or other, other animal products, but if we did, we'd be in slaughterhouses. Right. Or, well, I guess I have visited, uh, some, some slaughter facilities, but, but, but again, it's not my regular, my regular beat, but, but yeah, I do, I do love, uh, I do love that, that idea of, of you, you never know what, every, every day is different and every, every week is different. And, you know, speaking of collaboration, I just do want to give a, a shout out here, uh, a young colleague of mine who is a family and consumer science, health sciences educator, uh, up in Passaic County reached out to me recently. Cause I, when I first joined the faculty, I wrote a bunch of fact sheets on, you know, food safety in the kitchen that was based on some some HACCP documents, I think, that came out of USDA. So trying to apply HACCP to the to the home kitchen, which which I, I think is maybe not a good idea. But they were they were they were some some good advice on, you know, shopping for food safely, safely and preparing food safely, and et cetera, et cetera. And and I just hadn't updated them in years because, I mean, it just didn't sound that interesting. But this this young faculty member reached out to me and she said, hey, um, I'm interested in um, uh, updating these. Would you like to be involved? And I'm like, that's fantastic. Yes, you should absolutely update them, um, and we can we can work on them together. And we're we're sort of finishing making our way through that. And she's like, you know, I want to work on a new one, <clears throat> and uh, it's and it's about share tables. And oh. I immediately thought of you because if we hadn't had this podcast and we hadn't talked about share tables, I would have no idea what that was. Right. right? right. But it's like, oh, yeah, no, share tables, allergies. We yeah, should we do should, something. We should, we should yeah. do something on that. So um, so anyway, so we're going to get she's going to get these uh, rewrites of my fact sheets finished uh, by the end of this year. And then uh, next year we're going to start a new one. And and the great thing about this is I don't think I have ever met this person face to face. Like she's up in Passaic County. I'm um, in nominally in New Brunswick or, or more likely uh, traveling or working from home um, uh, down in Freehold. But, uh, but anyway, so, so just a shout, I, I'm pretty sure she doesn't listen, but, but in case she does, uh, Sarah, uh, El Nakib, um, uh, is, is, is a colleague of mine that I'm collaborating with that, that I wouldn't, again, it's, it's a great, it's, a, I, I like, you know, I mean, collaborations are fun, but especially when I can collaborate with somebody who's a, a young scientist, whether they're a graduate student or somebody at the assistant professor or even at the associate professor level who I can just like spend time with. And I get, and it's energizing, right? Because it's, they, they've got enthusiasm and they, they've got things they want to do and I can probably help. I can say, Hey, that's yeah, a good idea. Or, you know, maybe if you did it this way, you might be more, have a higher chance of success, you know, and, and I, and it's, and it's, and it's fun. Uh, yeah. So anyway, it, that's all I wanted to say. Yeah, no, no. It's, I mean, I, I think you're, you're exactly right. It, it, it is fun. And it's, um, that's, you know, that's one of the things I, that I'm, I'm like trying to pur purposely think about more of, and I'm, I don't, you know, admittedly, I don't think I'm doing a really good job at this, um, yet, but hopefully just like writing or washing your hands, the more I do it, the more successful I'll be at it. Um, the, uh, I, I think all the collaborations and stuff that I, I just talked about, um, those are all like 
selfish things, I guess, right? Like if I'm looking at like I have I I I'll benefit from this because intellectually I enjoy it. I like the people. It's fun. It's fun to do. Um, I'm not always thinking about what the other person's getting out of it. And with my hope of, well, if the other person's not getting out of it, anything out of it, then we probably shouldn't do it. They would tell me. Um, but, but I'm trying to be more purposeful about newer faculty members and thinking about, um, the, those engagements in a, in a way, cause I, I was like, I've been super lucky to have folks like you, folks like Leanne, um, uh, and Linda, I mean, many, many other people. Um, just, you know, spend time on, um, you know, talking through ideas and, and know, you know, everyone's got, got time. To, everyone spends time that they don't have that in, in, in my little circle to talk me through things. And, and I, that's, that's not selfish stuff, right? Like, and, and that's, I, I don't know how, how purposeful it is, um, that, that you think about that or, or, you know, that, that others think about it, but it's one of the things that I've been really trying to think about and, and, well, and be, you know, be there. Yeah, well, and speaking of speaking of thinking of uh, of spending time uh, that you don't have doing things, um, I got a I got an email, and this is and you'll I think you'll this is this is kind of a neat story. I think you'll see where where it goes. Um, uh, I got an email from somebody who was looking at one of my papers from many years ago, and it's a paper that we published in two thousand and two in Applied and Environmental Microbiology, and it's on modeling yeast spoilage in cold filled ready to drink beverages, and this was a collaboration with a woman named Alice Batty, who was a part-time uh, graduate student. She worked for Kraft Foods at the time, and she was doing tons and tons of challenge studies. And she got to thinking, hey, um, wouldn't it be better, instead of doing all these challenge studies, wouldn't it be better to do make a computer model? And I'm like, yes, that sounds like a fantastic idea. <laughs> yeah. we, should, we should definitely do this. Um, and we ended up doing some work, and um, she published, she got her master's degree, she published three papers, but um, the the interesting thing is all three of those papers have as a the uh, the co-author the middle author um, a woman by the name of Siobhan Duffy and Siobhan um, was this and this was and, and so the so all right so so I'm getting ahead of myself so uh, I get an email from somebody who is who actually speaking of uh, circle of circle of uh, life Hakuna Matata um, is in Maine and who's working with Jason Bolton who you and I both yeah. know um, who has a natural um, soda company. And he's like, Hey, I'm looking at this paper and I think the models might be useful for my, you know, uh, establishing the shelf life of my product, but I can't, I can't get the models to work. Right. And he sent me some spreadsheets and he got me digging and I, I dug into it and I'm like, yeah, you know, there's something funny with these models. And it turns out there was a couple of things wrong and it was, it had to do with, um, the fact that it was a logistic regression model. And Ben, I, I was I'm familiar logistic regression. Wait a minute. That's familiar. And I looked down and I've got the notes that I scribbled <laughs> based on the stuff that Meg is doing, where she is also using logistic regression. I'm like, that's no wonder that looks familiar. I had to, I had to solve for, for P before. Um, <laughs> so, um, so I, I explained to the guy that, that, you know, that yeah, yeah it's, it's a logit function. And so you have to do the, the math and blah, blah, blah. Um, and, but I'm, then I'm still looking at it and it still doesn't, it still doesn't make any sense. And, and I think Alice, uh, ran the models in a program called JMP, which is like a simplified version of SAS. And I'm like, you know, I really should, th this doesn't make sense. And I really should go back and redo this to make sure that there's not some mistake in the model. And I'm like, well, you know, I, I, my graduate student, Matt, um, 
um, I go was has basically did a demonstration when Laura Strawn and her Laura Strawn and her team were collaborating with us and uh, he demoed R and I'm like well geez you know this would be a great chance for me to learn to use R um, and I, what I could what I could have done is I could have said hey Matt would you just here's the data set um, and thank goodness this is a paper from after 2000 because anything earlier than that I don't actually even have the the data but but take take this uh, what I should what I could have said to Matt was hey take this data and just run the models in R but I, I tried to be cagey about it I said well hey I want to learn to run this in R <laughs> we set up me. a tutorial yeah. section and and it, that that very quickly de- diverted into he so basically what he did was he took he just he basically did it in R uh, and 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 then uh, and then I said okay well why don't you just send me your send me your code and it turns out the other problem which again it gives you the benefit of experience is the models were giving strange results um, because at the at the at lo- longer times under some conditions the models predicted spoilage and that's what we saw but then there was also this weird thing where at shorter times, approaching time zero, the models were also predicting growth. And it, and it didn't mm. occur to me until I went and I looked at the raw data, which is why I tell my students, always look at the raw data. Well, what we were modeling was we were modeling the counts that, that she had in these systems. And of course, at time zero, it ha- there are microorganisms in the system because you've spiked them with microorganisms. Uh, and so yeah, yeah. What, what the, the model had this weird uh, time squared parameter such that at very short or very long times, depending upon the conditions, you had quote unquote growth. But it really was an artifact of, of how we were coding the data, which which all makes sense. Like in the model, we ended up just making predictions at the at the end of shelf life at, at, at eight weeks rather than anything in between. But but it wasn't until. I sat down. I looked at the models that that Matt generated. I actually did. Uh, uh, he actually generated a bunch of models, but not quite exactly the one that I needed. And it turns out when I when I when we when I did get the model formulated correctly, it gave virtually the same results. But and and those same results. I, I could explain the weird time zero predictions because because we had starting concentrations uh, uh, from the inoculum. So the, the models are doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing, right? They're representing the data. It, just because it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that the models are wrong. The stats are right. The models are right. Just that you you asked a, a silly question or you phrased the question in a way that the computer mis, misinterpreted. But to bring it back to Siobhan Duffy, so Matt is like, well, so so did 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 Dr. Duffy work as your graduate student? Is that why she's part of this? And I said, actually, no, Matt. This was work that she did when she was an undergrad, and she she had such enthusiasm and such energy as even as an undergrad. She's like, you know. This pa- these papers with Alice, you're never going to publish them. You need to publish them so that you can get promoted. And, oh. and she said, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to make this happen. And and lo and behold, she did. I mean, and and so I I what I what I need is I need another I need another Siobhan Duffy for my lab. But I, but I think she's one of a kind. And and she's uh, obviously she's and she, she had an interesting uh, trajectory. She went off to Yale. She got a Ph.D. Uh, she did a, a postdoc at Penn State. And lo and behold, uh, came back to Rutgers University where uh, she is now a, a tenure professor. So. Wow. Anyway. That's and, cool. I, and, I, and I hardly ever get to see her uh, because she's in a different building. Oh, and in a different department. Uh, but the department that she's in is, speaking of your applied ecology department, she's in the Rutgers Department of Ecology, Evolution, and Natural Resources, where she studies evolution of viruses, um, which which is really cool. Uh, and but and she's obviously not doing uh, food safety anymore. But we would we would again if we could just find the the time and the right project, uh, I'm sure we could. And we we did, I did talk to her a little bit. Um, uh, with uh, with Robin's stuff on bacteriophage MS2, but we never it never actually turned into a collaboration. So. Hmm. 
anyway, so that's my that's my story uh, of of what's been going on uh, this week when I wasn't um, filling out uh, international travel paperwork or trying to get my cell phone so it'll turn turn on in Japan um, or, or filling out reimbursement for travel to to Portugal uh, from two months ago, which I'm overdue to submit. So. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So it's so you know these the, the these are the things that keep us doing all the other nonsense that we have to do. Yeah. Yeah. Right. right. Um, okay. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take a segue, uh, not the scooter, but uh, whatever whatever it's called in the uh, storytelling world, um, off of uh, evolution of viruses to uh, outbreak of a virus that's happening Ooh. right now. Yes, I wanted to talk to you about this. Yes, yeah. I put it in Dropbox. Yeah. 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 So, um, and, and you know, one of the pieces of feedback that we've heard uh, is, you know, we have a lot of feedback, and we're going to get to uh, hopefully a bunch of it today. But also, we want to make sure we're, we're we keep talking about things that are happening. So, um, CDC yesterday morning, uh, well, I guess it was no, I guess it was yesterday afternoon, um, announced. Um, uh, an outbreak of hepatitis A virus infections linked to fresh blackberries. Um, And so um, uh, the uh, short uh, version of this, uh, which, and I think CDC is doing a real, like as an aside, CDC is doing an excellent job um, of really distilling down information that uh, news folks can grab out of their, uh, you know, website announcements um, and really also doing a good job talking about where they're going with investigation outbreaks. Um, I think FDA is getting, is getting there and FSIS is oh, getting well, there. Oh, well, and let, and let's, let's put a pin in that. Cause I, I do good. want to talk to you about, uh, the, the, the Romaine outbreak yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Nobody, that nobody knew about, right? We're coming back to that. We're coming All right, back. Good, yeah. good, good. Um, but, but here's. Uh, so CDC, public health and regulatory officials in three states and FDA are investigating a multi-state outbreak of hep A that may be linked to fresh conventional non-organic blackberries purchased during September 9th to 30th from Fresh Time Farmer's Market, a Midwest grocery chain. Um, and so I'll, I'll skip down uh, here. 11 cases in three states, six hospitalizations. Um, you know, hepatitis A is, is pretty, pretty bad. Um, and so here's some recommendations. Uh, CDC recommends that people purchase fresh blackberries from any fresh time farmers market location, which stores, uh, ha- which has stores in 11 Midwest states during September 9th to 30th. Take the following actions. Check your freezer for these blackberries. If you froze them to eat later, do not eat them. Throw, throw away any remaining blackberries. And if you have eaten these blackberries, purchase from fresh and later frozen within the last 14 days or not vaccinated, contact, contact your local health department to go get um, a, you know, post-exposure uh, prophylaxis. This is really good messaging. This is no longer um, don't eat this, throw it out. Like getting into these questions of people might have preserved this um, it, by freezing. If you did and you ate them in the last 14 days, you can actually do something to protect yourself. This is different. Um, than than what we have seen in the past, and and Hepe is is a little bit special, um, because you, you have a window of of time that if you are exposed, that you can really reduce the uh, um, the uh, I- uh, impacts to you, um, and so and you know, investigation details. There's not a whole lot, um, you know. Uh, illnesses started uh, popping up on October 15th. They've ranged to November 5th. Uh, people range in age from 14 years to 73 years with the median age of 35. 73% uh, of people are female. Um, and it's you know basically Epi is, is showing a, a link to this, this grocery store. So um, 
uh, traceback uh, is going on uh, in interviews. Um, and this this is where CDC is getting much better at talk, talking about, like, giving us the information on how they calculate odds ratios. Because, you know, we 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 have talked about this, not having a whole lot of information and we're guessing on things. But here, all of a sudden, in this investigation of the outbreak, of the people who were interviewed, 11 out of 11 reported eating fresh, fresh blackberries, 100%. Not um, of the nine people with known fresh blackberry purchase location information, nine out of nine purchased it from Fresh Time Farmers Markets. Wow, that's um, like a pretty pretty much a home run, I would say, in in the odds ratio uh, standpoint. Um, so this one, um, and so I, this this proportion was significantly higher than the results of a survey of healthy people in which set, you know the case control study right. uh, in which seven percent reported eating fresh berries in the week before that they were interviewed. Um, I eat a lot of fresh blackberries, Don. I eat like a ton of them. Um, in fact, uh, as I have, uh, I, I'm no longer uh, talking about this as uh, as a diet, um, but uh, as I. Um, you change change my lifestyle of eating uh, not so much in the world of breads and starches and you know grains um, things that I am still eating in the in the carbohydrate world are berries and I'm, I'm I've got blackberries for for my lunch today um, with raspberries and strawberries um, I eat a, I literally eat a ton of these and so so here's um, and, and maybe, by literally you mean figuratively I mean figuratively a ton of it uh, literally not literally. Um, I uh, this is one where um, I, I'm following this closely. Uh, two two things. Um, I'm following this closely because um, I want to know uh, whether this becomes an outbreak that's linked to a local you know, one supplier um, of Fresh Time Farmers Market, which is a, a grocery store that I've not heard of, I'm not familiar with. We don't have them here in North Carolina, or if this is like a large supplier issue, and and we're sort of at the tip of the iceberg um, of this. Um, and so, so I, anyway, this one, this one caught my eyes because I'm, I'm really, um, you know, cause this is a product that I eat a lot of. Yeah. And, and you know what, actually what originally caught, caught my attention with it is I thought this was an outbreak linked to a farmer's market, but right, it's not. Yes. It's, it's just a grocery chain that has the very misleading name of fresh time, T H Y M E farmer's market. So I'm, I'm very interested to learn more about this grocery chain that, that, um, has farmer's market in the name. So, yeah. 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 I, you know, I did the same thing. And actually I, when I looked at the headline, I thought, Oh, we're, I'm, I'm working on a project with, with Renee Boyer on farmer's markets. Um, and, uh, Kristen Gibson, uh, at the university of Arkansas. And, um, and I was like, oh man, is this an example that we have for farmer's markets? You know? And, uh, so I, you know, I did this, I did the same thing. And then I looked and didn't know it's, it's an actual, it's an actual place. They have stores, they got stores all over the place in the Midwest, I've, but, but we don't live in the Midwest Don. Nope. Um, yeah. So, so there, and there, yeah. So they're, uh, if you go to the about page of their website, uh, they have a simple mission to improve the way our communities eat by offering fresh, healthy food at amazing values. Um, at Fresh Time, you'll find a natural food marketplace that feeds your body without feasting on your wallet. Much of what we offer is organic and natural. Um, we're committed to providing more items that are clean label, organic or food you feel good about. No artificial colors, colors flavors or preservatives. Uh, vegan, paleo, keto, vegetarian, glute, uh, wheat and gluten free. 
Um, yeah, but but again, it's not it's not clear. You know, and, and what where are they getting uh, uh, fresh berries this time of year anyway? Right. They're probably not getting them from anywhere in the United States would be my guess. I mean, maybe, you know, people that listen to this podcast probably know the answer to that. Yeah. Um, I think I think some of the blackberries uh, uh, that I've purchased recently are a product of USA and they are Florida blackberries, maybe. But we know someone who know who will correct us on this. Yes, exactly. In fact, uh, maybe we'll do some real time follow up. Oh, um, speaking speaking of real time follow up, um, so I have uh, here in my Twitter, uh, I have a tweet from a friend of the show, Alex Cox, um, and and she says, uh, "Hey, bug counter, are there any other instances of food grade plastic asking for a friend?" And she is linked to an article that says uh, Mondelez Global LLC has issued a recall of 11-ounce boxes of cheese nips sold nationwide that may contain small food-grade pieces of yellow plastic from a dough scraper. Whoa. So I'm, I'm not sure why Alex is asking about this. Um, she is known on the podcast that she does, uh, Do By Friday, for eating things that are not food. <laughs> I'm not sure if she thinks that this might be something that she wants to eat. Um, so I'm not, I'm not really sure what she's asking, but, but for sure we have seen uh, a number of outbreaks, um, uh, where, where, uh, food grade and non-food grade plastic gets into food. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, and you know, recently this, this is one, um, and maybe in the last couple of weeks I've, uh, I've, uh, had a couple of interviews on it because there have been foreign material recalls, plastic, um, and uh, one of the ones that, that we talked about on the podcast a couple of years ago when this happened, one of my favorite ones was, uh, I think it was potatoes, frozen potatoes that had golf ball pieces um, in them. Do you remember that one? I do. Where, yeah. yeah. And, um, and, and so I, I think how when I talk to journalists about this, everyone's like, oh, my gosh, is there just more plastic in our food and what's happening? Um, and I, I think that th- this is largely good storytelling because we um, it's – it's one of those. Um, w- there's more coverage because it's it's weird to have golf ball pieces or plastic in your food, um, and it makes for it makes for good stories. Uh, well, I mean, you know, uh, uh, I mean, yellow yellow plastic from a dough scraper in cheese nips is is challenging because they it, it's it's you know it's hard to see right because yeah. they kind of maybe look like cheese nips, uh, but but golf balls in in hash browns is 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 way funnier. <laughs> I mean, I hope no one got sick from it or, or got injured, but it's, I think it's because golf balls and hash browns, it's just funnier, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. I agree. I agree. Um, but anyway, I don't think there's more of this. I think it's just, um, when, we, when they happen and there's maybe two or three in a week, it, it makes for a good connection. Um, but, uh, but there you go. Plastic dough scraper, yellow pieces. Um, in yeah, and, the- and, and, and I would say, you know, it does, it does happen all the time. Um, and, and, and the, and the good news is, is that, that the, these get some media attention. Uh, the good news is that they are not as potentially as serious as uh, microbial foodborne uh, problems or or even chemical uh, problems. Uh, they tend to be limited to very small number of batches and uh, people. It's it, it's so there's a possibility there's a possible choking hazard and people could get injured or they could chip a tooth. But generally speaking, in the world of food safety, these are hot no no pun intended small potatoes. Um, 
but uh, but but they but they are something that the industry cares about, and there are systems in place to stop this from happening. Um, you know, for example, with the, uh, the 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 break the scraper blade, what many companies will do is at the end of a shift they'll they'll inspect uh, the line and see if anything is broken on the line, and if if there is, um, they'll obviously quarantine that product and and dump it or or rework it or or send it for animal feed. Um, so this, this sort of thing shouldn't happen. Uh, the golf balls in the hash browns, probably uh, that was not part of the processing, right? So that was probably a harvesting issue uh, where somebody was driving golf balls into this field uh, with potatoes. And uh, again, that would have been handled on, on the front end by you know, inspection protocols for the field. So the, the industry has ways of stopping these problems, but they, they just obviously they don't always work. Yeah, right, right, right. And um, and it's uh, – it shows that the um, the system's kind of working, right? That we get that we catch them. Exactly. Yeah. Um, well, and we and we never hear about the ones that that don't make it out, right? The ones that get that caught with get caught in the company and never make it out into the world. There's no need to do a recall, and they never get they never get known outside the company. Yeah. Exactly. Well, good. Good. Some real time follow up. Um, I'm not. Uh, I, I did text a friend of the show, Michelle Danilock, uh, with the question of where would blackberries come from this time of year? And I. Okay. I, and I have not heard. I haven't heard anything. So, well, as soon as I hear here, I'll, I'll report back. Um, so, so, we, so, do you yeah. want to circle back to Romaine? Yeah. And, and give me your thoughts on that. Uh, well, I know our friends from the FDA are going to be maybe unhappy with what we have to say, but um, we should talk about it anyway. Well, okay. So, I mean, there's a couple of things going on, right? Um, we've got, we, we, we have, uh, in, in, you know, an outbreak right now um, that, that's happening. Um, the, so, let's, 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 let's circle back and talk a little bit about a, a, some history here. Um, so, uh, leafy greens have been linked to lots and lots and lots of, uh, outbreaks, um, in, in the past. And we've got, um, I, I, I did an interview on this recently where, um, there were, uh, I think it was like 60 or 70 outbreaks. Um, and, and, and so it's one of these, these products that keeps coming up, but, but in, in weird little spurts, um, and so we hadn't heard a whole lot about um, leafy greens or, or romaine for the last year or so, and then all of a sudden, um, we we've got this this outbreak that um, that pops up. And so, uh, uh, E. coli outbreak in eight states, possibly linked to romaine lettuce. Source of the bacteria still unknown, but romaine in cer- certain packaged salads is a, is a prime um, suspect. And this is uh, seventeen people in eight states. Um, that, that we're looking at, uh, and it started in, um, uh, late September to early November. And, and I guess the, the, one of the most interesting parts of this to me, Don, is that this is, comes at a a very similar time that we've had a very similar sized outbreak linked to lettuce that we did last year. Um, you know, and I remember this, um, I mean, I remember it because it was just a year ago. I remember it more uh, strikingly is because uh, I did uh, some some media interviews um, on Thanksgiving Day, and Thanksgiving was was like a week earlier last year, um, and 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 there were lots of questions about like romaine lettuce at Thanksgiving, and which is not something that I think is a traditional food at Thanksgiving, but but it was. I mean, this happened basically around the same around the same time last year. And and as we've talked a little bit about it, um, 
um, a, a couple things you know come up, uh, and, and again from folks that we know who are closer to this, closer to production, talking about this is a transition time of year where uh, what you know what that means is production is moving from one part of the country to another as we get out of a season, um, you know somewhere. And I think this this one, I, th- I believe if I get this correct, um, that we're transitioning out of. Um, the California Central Coast, uh, Central Coastal area of California, to other parts of uh, of um, the U.S., including I think Yuma and Florida. Um, but but we it, 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 geographically um, we can. I think investigators are, are and I don't want to say that we can make a pretty good guess on where we know it's coming from. I think people are focusing their attention on on the end of a season transition uh, from from one spot. But here's the thing: this is we've got this outbreak right that that's happening. Um, you know, sort of maybe not right now, maybe it's over. Um, you know, so last, uh, last illness came, uh, in, in November, early November. Um, the product probably, um, isn't, uh, in many homes anymore, but, um, and I, as I kind of reported, um, in our, in our secret bat check back bat channel text, um, recalling product that, that is from, you know, has a best before date of like October 30th, and here we are November 21st. Um, many folks in the industry would say, "Oh, well, that's you know, no one should have that in their in their homes." I'm I'm here to reiterate a message that I've mentioned um, on the podcast before, and I've talked about it in lots of different places. Let's not let let's not guess on what could people have in their homes. Um, let's not uh, think, "Oh, it's past the best before date," and and everyone goes through their fridge every day looking for stuff. And and even if they looked at this product and it's twenty days past their, its best before date, that it wouldn't be good. I you know, let's not make assumptions on that because there are lots of people, especially folks that are in. Um, uh, dealing with food disparity or dealing with hunger that may take a look at uh, a bag of lettuce that they've had for three weeks and and pick out pieces of it that are still edible uh, that in, in their in their judgment not not in ours um, another thing that that I have seen um, is at food banks and food pantries we, we did some work on this a while ago um, that uh, there are certain cases where some of these types of products, you know, triple wash bag salads, salad kits, um, may uh, stand up with good cold chain, um, and and then are distributed uh, through you know through food banks and food pantries well after their their best before date. Um, so anyway, so that's the current one. But here's the I guess the fun part um, of this. Um, this outbreak uh, follows up on another one um, that uh, that FDA didn't talk about, um, and and so uh, uh, there were um, th- this announcement came out um, early uh, in, in earlier in November, uh, but there was an outbreak of E. coli one five seven H seven linked to twenty three people across twelve states from July to September that the uh, that FDA announced uh, in in November, um, and. And and here's the like I guess the the hard part, and this is something that that I've talked about, and, and we'll link to the um, the paper that I wrote with with Doug um, about going public. Um, the announcement came more than a month after the CDC began investigating a cluster of cases uh, on, on September seventeenth, um, and 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 so so for me, and I'll you know I'll, I'll jump right in to um, the the you know this this conversation. And, and and you can use the um, um, 
the Paul Mead uh, quote in a second. Um, but telling telling folks that we're investigating something and it's a big, uh, it's a cluster and it's not a cluster F, but a cluster. Um, but it, it's a cluster of illnesses and we, and it's, and it's E. coli 157H7 and we don't know. And the epidemiology is, is, uh, um, is messy and, and it might be one of these 16 things and it might be something else is a much better message than, than coming out a month later and saying, um, Hey, uh, we had this outbreak, and uh, and we're letting you know now. Um, and 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 I and and I appreciate that telling people we had this outbreak and we're letting you know now is a step forward from where we were 15 years ago, which was um, we're not going to say anything. And, we, and when you see a report at the end of the year, you'll see that there was an, an outbreak that was um, that was identified. So so anyway, that's that's my like. I don't want to be super negative about it, but I think we can do a better job of saying we are investigating things. And one of the things that we're investigating um, is showing uh, all these different foods. And, and here's what we're doing to go down the path to investigate them. And, and that might just go away. Like that might be the end of the story. But it, it, it certainly looks bad in, um, a, you know, afterwards. Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, and I can understand the reasons why they did what they did, but, but it, it's not a good look. Right. It's 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 not a good look. I mean, yeah. And and, and just to uh, repeat um, the that Paul Mead quote, um, uh, Paul was a, a CDC epidemiologist. I think he's retired now. But um, the quote is food safety recalls are always either too early or too late. If you're right, it's always too late. And if you're wrong, it's always too early. Um, and I guess another reason why you if, if you never announce it, you that's probably also too late. <laughs> Right, right. right. Yeah. Or, or, or if you don't announce it until um, it's it's over, that that's probably also too late. Yeah, and um, and so and just on on this, there's yeah. um, I, we'll link to Consumer Reports because I think they did some good coverage on this. Um, you know, they they really push, um, you know, push push uh, to get to get question to uh, get comments. So there, there's a quote. Um, in Consumer Reports that we'll link to show notes that says, in this case, while there was no actionable consumer information, the outbreak was over prior to the determination of a vehicle. Given the noteworthy nature of this outbreak and an interest in accelerating awareness, we chose to communicate through an FDA statement in the short term in order to ensure full awareness by the public. I like that. Like, like this is one um, that, that – and, and FDA, I'm sure, is getting beat up. And, and like I say, I'm sure. Like I'm guessing, I know they are um, from from people that that we've that we've talked to. Um, I know that they're getting beat up by the industry and probably by some academics on saying, "Well, if people can't do anything about it, why are you talking about it?" I, I you know, I'm going to reiterate some stuff that I've said before. If if I'm really trying to choose safe food consumption as a consumer. And there is a particular class of foods that has been over and over and over again linked to outbreaks, whether that's, you know, lettuce, ground beef, um, you know, raw scallops, you know, kimchi. I don't I don't really care what it is. But but if, if the government has information, public health officials have information that that this food is is riskier than what you might think, because because you're not seeing this publicly, 
and I don't have that information, whether, whether it's, whether we think that's right to act on based on perception or not, doesn't, doesn't really matter. We, we do need to share information when there's an outbreak, when there's an incident, we need to let people know because it goes into their decision-making or, or, and I, let me, let me back up. It might go into their decision-making and I'll tell you, it goes into my decision-making, um, as someone who's, who's close to this, but it, it may really go into, to someone who's, uh, struggling with, um, you know, uh, being immunocompromised or, or going through cancer treatment. If, you know, if, if you had a, a food that, that publicly had been linked to three outbreaks, but privately we we've investigated 50 outbreaks and then another food that publicly had been linked to three outbreaks and, and privately that's it. There's nothing. It's only three. And I'm trying to weigh these foods against each other. Knowing about those 50 outbreaks matters, matters to me. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and we'll link. Uh, there's a, there's a, uh, a rather uh, an article with a rather inflammatory uh, headline from uh, Food Safety News. It's written by Coral Beach. Uh, that the the headline is uh, FDA hid romaine related outbreak from public view for more than six weeks. So, um, and and Food Safety News is sponsored by Bill Marler. And uh, and and again, Bill Bill is, has been very strong about that. But he's also you know the in the in the um, in the Coral Beach article. She just gives a generic link to, to Marler's website, and the top post on his website right now is something that says uh, outbreak announcement via tweet. Now, that is transparency, so uh, Bill is praising uh, a tweet from Frank Giannis uh, saying uh, that it's great that FDA and the Maryland Department of Health are out early with actionable information. Uh, and this is on the uh, the, the most recent outbreak, yeah. the, the Red Pack Bistro outbreak. So, so, I mean, Bill will bash you if he thinks you're wrong, and he'll also praise you if he thinks you're doing the right thing. So. Yeah, and um, and I get like, and I mean, this and, is yo. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, and I would say, and sometimes, um, sometimes he get, Bill gets things wrong. Right, you know? right. Like he might uh, show <laughs> up to have dinner with you, uh, thinking that he's having dinner with somebody else, and then, and then sit across the bar from you, and and not and awkwardly like uh, look at you instead of engaging with you, and then and then somehow realize that um, when he texts uh, one of the people in your party that he was actually supposed to meet them, and he thought you were someone else. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the only, the only thing that would have made that whole thing better is if that John Roderick had also been there. Oh my gosh. It would have been, it would have been the greatest. Um, Hey, so, so let me ask you this. Um, oh, and the other thing too, I want to just say in terms of your, uh, people might still have, don't, 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 uh, don't, uh, prejudge whether people have food in their fridge or not. Um, uh, I just do want to mention a really nice, uh, a bit of work by my colleague, Bill Hallman, uh, back in the original spinach outbreak of 2006, uh, which is an article on the Rutgers website entitled Public Response to the Contaminated Spinach Recall of 2006, which basically shows exactly what you just said, Ben. People had all kinds of stuff in their fridge that might have been part of the outbreak, and, and they didn't always do the right thing in terms of uh, you know dumping it or, or whatever. So, um, but, but I want to ask you about these two recent outbreaks, the one that FDA quote-unquote hid and the other one. Do we know anything about the strains? Because I thought I remember reading somewhere that one of these outbreaks is the exact same strain that crops up at this time of year I, uh, yep. in past years. I, I believe you're there. Yep. Yeah. I mean, and I think that's the that's the 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 most interesting part about this. I'll, I'll see if I can um, find this in the CDC notice. Um, I believe it's the. Um, uh, um, I believe it was the same strain that we've seen. Okay. Um, yeah, it might it, it might be in 
um, um, information that we we received from a, a colleague that is uh, that could not, be offline, not, could be not not public, not public. So. A- anyway, well, let me let me tell you that the um, th- th- I think it's early, and and what we're talking about is is whole genome sequencing. Um, the two thousand and yeah, so 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 oh, this yeah. this is information from a person who will not be named who got it from somebody that, that we don't know. Um, <laughs> who heard who it from are. a friend? Um, who heard yeah, it from a friend? Uh, yeah, that's hearsay, Ben. That's, that's hearsay. hearsay. That's not admissible in court. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's also not a prid, quid pro quo. <laughs> oh gosh, taking notes. No, um, I want nothing. I uh, want nothing. So so this this most recent, <laughs> I want nothing. I want nothing. <laughs> written twice. Um, <sighs> Uh, uh, so, uh, and, and if you don't know what we're talking about, um, sorry, uh, we'll link to something at the beginning of the podcast that explains all that. Um, so this, this, uh, note says, uh, this is talking about the, the, the current Maryland outbreak. Um, this strain is highly related within zero to six yeah. alleles to the previous outbreaks, including the 2018 Romaine outbreak linked to Adams brothers farming, Santa Maria, California, uh, two outbreaks with leafy greens as a suspect vegetable and two outbreaks with an unknown vehicle. So, um, so there again, and I've said this on, on previous podcasts and about this situation, and I'll, I'll say it again, there is something going on in that part of the world where this strain has, is, is endemic in the environment or, or is, is in endemic in something that keeps coming into contact with this romaine lettuce. And obviously if it was easy, people would have figured it out already. And so it's not easy. Um, it's hard. Uh, but, but I, I, I've got to think at some point we're going to figure out where this, where this particular bug is hiding out. Right. Right, right, right. And, and this is, I mean, something that I, I talked about a lot last year because I think that the whole, whole genome sequencing from the 2018 outbreak was very similar to, um, the, um, the sequence from the 2017 outbreak that was around the same time. Um, uh, this is that. And so you and I find that really interesting, right? Like, like I, right. I don't want to put, put words in your mouth. Yeah, it, no, no. Fascinating. Fascinating. Yeah. That just having that link between 2017 and 18 appeared almost nowhere in the media coverage. Um, you, right. Like the, the, right. the media coverage is about, um, you know, just these, and which is, this is, inf- this is good, like information that we, that we need to have. Here's people are getting sick. This is what, you know, this is what's happening, but there's an untold story here about, you know, what, what is it, um, what, what's happening in this time of the year that is common that we need to, we need to figure out. And, um, and, and what is it, is it geographically located? Is it about a, a specific um, processing plant. I know in, in 2017, you know, FDA, hopefully we can find this FDA had just a phenomenal, um, uh, visual that I use in, in, uh, talks about the complexity of the traceback. Um, and actually, sorry, I, I'll get that wrong. That was actually the Yuma linked outbreak. Um, uh, so th- there is, that the story to me is is deeper than people are still getting sick from leafy greens. It's that that exactly what you hit on. That there's some someone's going to figure it out. There's some common commonality here that uh, whole genome sequencing is helping us with, and and we've got to we've got to figure out what what the um, what the issue is that's leading to this the same thing popping up 
you know, now now what looks like, and I don't want to speculate too much, but what looks like three years in a row um, at the same time. The 2017 outbreak, I'm just looking at um, at, at the final uh, uh, outbreak of, of um, uh, information from CDC, 25 cases in 15 states, one death. Um, uh, Shigatoxin producing E. coli 0157. Um, and Don, let's look at the date range November 5th, 2017 to December 12th, 2017. A little later, um, in 2018, we have, um, uh, the, if I can get the right one here, um, because we had two outbreaks. This is one, the Yuma one was in June, the late one. Um, We've got 62 cases and 25 hospitalizations and, and zero deaths, um, and and a very um, you know very very um, uh, similar strain uh, or not strains very similar sequence to to the first one. Right. So so anyway, we've got to figure it out. Right, and 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 again, it's a complicated time of year because they're in transition. They're they're stopping uh, production in one part of the country. They're moving to other parts of the country. So there's a, just a lot of there's a lot of stuff going on, and of course, we're never learning about this stuff in real time. So now you've got to go back um, to, to locations where you know it looks very different than it looked um, you know weeks ago when when production was was ramping up or was 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 steady or was at its peak versus now when it's in transition. So yeah, it's 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 a tough it's a tough problem, obviously, uh, because we haven't solved it yet, but. Um, yeah, it's it, it, we need to we need to fix this. Yeah, yeah, no, abs- absolutely. Um, real time, uh, real time uh, uh, follow up from uh, from the uh, show, uh, Michelle Danilak. Uh, w- my question of where would blackberries come from this time of year? She said transition to South America. So it depends on where they. Ah, from. another transition. Transition, transition, transition. Uh, it, well, and let's. I mean, let's talk about that, right? Like this is something that that you say that. And I know why you say that because we've heard this in multiple um, uh, multiple times in outbreaks. It's at the end of a crop, we seem to see um, complications and traceability. And end of the crop somewhere in a in a um, in the start of a crop elsewhere, we see uh, obviously that complicates the traceability, com- com- complicates a, a uh, an investigation, but also something is is different at the end or the start of the crop where. Um, maybe, maybe things we're trying to push things. We're trying to get stuff off the fields that, um, might not have been as good as it was earlier, um, in the, in the season. Maybe if it's early in the season, we're trying to get things off quicker so we can start, um, sales. Um, but there is something there's transition time of, of produce is a common thing that we hear in outbreaks. Um, and you know, and someone should look at that. (laughs) Someone should do yes. that. Someone should do that work. Yes. Yes. I, I don't know why they haven't done it already, Ben. I don't know why they're so looking at it. Yeah. Just someone, someone figure it out. So figure out the transitions. Um, all right. So what else? Uh, I mean, there's there are a few things going on. Um, where We've got a lot of... Um, we've got a lot of um, feedback. What do you want to... Where do you want to start? Oh, let's do, let's do some feedback. Okay. Should we go... Should we go back... Way back in the stack? <laughs> <laughs> Did I do that right? Uh, pop- I don't know, but I'm sure we'll hear from people if we didn't get it right. Uh, let's uh, let's pop the stack, Ben. <laughs> okay, okay. So I think that means I'm going to go to the last. I'm going to go no, the the least recent, the oldest uh, bit of feedback. I'm not sure what it means, but just pick one. I'm doing that. I'm doing that. Okay. 
So um, a, a listener uh, to the show, um, and we're going to call him um, Deep Gramercy, uh, sent us uh, some information way back uh, – uh, back in October, based on some stuff that we had talked about in Bugs and Salad. Um, and so you shared a, a literal, literal bugs, literal, literal bugs, insect bugs. Yeah, right? literally, literally uh, tons of bugs, but just figuratively tons of them, but actual insects. Um, and so, um, you know, the, send us, send us the story that I'm, I'll uh, relay uh, uh, briefly. Um, and this is from uh, a great story from Danny Myers, uh, Setting the Table. So unless something, quote, unless something truly grave has occurred, food poisoning, someone slipping in a pool of olive oil, it's sometimes helpful when appropriate to inject a little humor into the great last chapter. I was at 11 Madison Park during lunch one day when the former Senator Bob Carey of Nebraska, a regular at our restaurants since becoming president of the new school, came in. When he greeted me, he asked, did you hear what happened last night in, at Gramercy Ch Tavern? We had a dinner party in your private dining room. I had not heard about it. That embarrassed me. I should have been given a heads up by my staff. So how was it? Uh, I asked. Well, it was good except for the beetle and my friend's salad, he said. Oh, God, I feel horrible, I said. I apologize. Uh, I hope my team has ha handled it well. Did you bring it to their attention? Oh, yeah, the senator said. The person was a bit upset, but you, uh, your people handled it incredibly well. I walked away shaking my head. What a business. After seating Senator Kerry, I spoke to our manager at 11 Madison Park. There was a mistake at a salad in Gramercy Tavern. We've got to figure out how to write the great last chapter here, I said. I gave her the background adding, whether or not Senator Kerry or his guest orders a salad during his lunch, I want you to deliver a beautiful salad and garnish it with a small piece of paper. In that piece of paper, I want you to write down the word Ringo. And when you deliver it, you can tell them, Danny wanted to make sure that you knew that uh, make sure you knew what that Gramercy Tavern wasn't the only one of his restaurants that is willing to garnish your salad with a beetle. <laughs> Fortunately, the mistake hadn't been very serious. No one had gotten sick or been hurt, but it was now impossible for Senator Kerry to tell anyone the story about the beetle and his salad without also mentioning the last chapter we wrote the following day. Uh, nice. It's a good, it's a good one. So, um, so uh, uh, you know, uh, shout out to deep, deep Gramercy. Uh, and then also, um, uh, make sure that uh, if if you're a restaurant restaurateur uh, and someone uh, gets uh, something in their in, in their food that you write a little note about it and uh, try to play it into something funny. It might not work all the time though. Just full disclosure. Yeah, and we'll and we'll link to. Uh, the, I had not heard of this book, uh, but no. we'll link to uh, setting the table, uh, uh, transforming the power of hospitality in business by Danny Marr. So, so thanks for that. Perfect. Perfect. Um, all right. So. Um, so we've got, we have another, um, uh, oh, did we talk, you know what? I think we talked about this one already. The next one. Aramonis. Yeah. I think we talked about Aramonis, didn't we? Cause I, I don't remember. remember. You don't remember? Um, yeah, we did. We did. We talked about that one. That one's just a vestigial. Okay. Yeah. I got to do a better job. Um, okay. So, uh, here's a, uh, comment from, uh, deep cheese. Uh, good day, foodies. As always, I really enjoy listening to insightful conversations on food safety. I've made a couple of contributions in the past as deep cheese, deep soup, etc. I've just listened to your comments on finding bugs or foreign objects in your salad from episode 195. I want to uh, add a really important point that neither of you mentioned. If you find a bug or foreign object in your food, contact the council or food authority. Not sure what entity you have in your jurisdiction. So local, you know, local health department, uh, state uh, department of health, whomever. Um, 
Uh, anyway, uh, so they can investigate. We, as environmental health officers, have the investigative resources and legal backup to follow up and require food businesses everything they can reasonably and uh, everything they can reasonably do to avoid contaminated food being served to someone else. If the bug is a fly in an open kitchen, scenario may be less important. However, it's a cockroach in the soup. It definitely should be investigated. So, absolutely, um, you know, uh, shout outs to the. Um, uh, to the good folks that listen to our podcast who are environmental health officers, environmental health specialists, local local folks, state folks, whomever, um, and just to the normals that um, it's great to ask us questions. That's all cool. But if you do if you do see something um, or you experience something uh, that's food safety related, let uh, let the health department know. Let them investigate. That's what they're there for, and they're really good at it. Yeah, and and you know I I will get requests on a regular basis f- uh, for someone to uh, test food. Um, that they think uh, might be adulterated. And my advice is if you, if you think this is a deliberate poisoning, you should contact the police. And if you think it's accidental, you should contact FDA or USDA um, or local public health because because th- that's that those are the people that have the actual power to do something. So I, I basically I'm just reiterating the, the same point that uh, made by by our, our uh, listener deep cheese. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We did a couple of these ones already. So I'm going to move forward. Um, oh, oh, did we talk about this one? Did we talk about the Caviac cooler cleaner? I don't think so. Okay. I remember looking at this. Maybe you and I had a little text conversation about it. Okay. So, um, so this comes from a deep, deep cleaner, deep cooler. Sorry. Um, and, uh, she sent us a link to, uh, a, um, a product called the Caviac, uh, cooler cleaner. And um, so it's at caveat.com. You can go check it out. And there's a pretty good video uh, showing um, this, uh, showing commercial coolers like in, in grocery stores, open open coolers, um, and showing uh, basically this system of, of how you might clean it. And, and the cleaner includes kind of a vacuum and then a spray. Um, and, uh, it's, it's kind of like a, a floor, uh, you know, a unit that's on the floor that's got a power washer that, that allows you to, um, to like, uh, you know, D, uh, I guess, uh, vacuum up juices and then spray right next to the food. Um, and so, so the, so deep cooler says they, and I guess the meaning the company are pushing this as a way to clean food contact surfaces and coolers of grocery stores. And they have not conducted any testing on food contact. You just need water and pressure wash at 70 PSI. Um, uh, Don, it seems like a bad idea to me. Um, yeah. And I guess, you know, when we, we would, if, if I was asked to give a, you know, a, a, a more formal opinion on this, I would reach out to my colleagues that uh, are in food safety for supermarkets and say, hey, look, what do you guys do to clean your refrigerated cases? What, what are your, what are your SOPs? Do you, what kind of hardware do you use? What kind of cleaning chemicals do you use? Um, and do you, uh, yeah, do you have any opinion on this device? Like if I, if I, and if I was caveat and I wanted to promote this, I would, I would be able, I would try to like find people that were using it and then say, Hey, can we, can we mention on our website that your supermarket chain uses this? Right. So, and I don't see any of that. So, no. yeah, I mean, you know, this it's uh, c- cleaning of a food contact surfaces and, and, and food environments should really be left to people that understand how to do it. 
Um, and uh, yeah, I appreciate that these folks have entrepreneurial spirit and they think that they might have a great technology, but, um, I would, I would, uh, my, my first reaction is skepticism. Well, and, and it's, uh, like, so two things to me, um, I, I'm, I'm skeptical that it works cause it's, you know, sort of a, a no compound, uh, product. What I'm more concerned about is taking this food debris that might be in these coolers and using a 70 PSI pressure washer and now Just spraying it around. Spray it all around, yeah. Right. So, so it's like, does it clean? Does it clean the surface? Oh, you bet your ass it does. Does it take the debris and put it all over my, you know, beef packages? Probably, based on what we see. This is what you know. One of the recommendations um, uh, around trying to do listeria control in food processing plants is um, don't, you know, we we know that listeria likes to live in drains. Don't open up the drain grate and then put a power washer down there where you're spraying the listeria to other parts of your, uh, your of your production system. Um, and so, so to me, that that that's the the biggest thing that that I you know, worry about. Um, it, you can do it with water. Um, but there are uh, a full range of, this is from the, one of their brochures, a full range of chemicals designed for specific soil settings and surfaces. Um, they combine orange oil with hydrogen peroxide to make an environmentally friendly, multi-purpose pH neutral cleaner. Um, and what I really want to know is, is it also good for, um, uh, you know, uh, killing pathogens? Yeah, who, who knows? It, it, but it's probably pretty good at spreading them around. <laughs> yeah. And they do list here, Don, that it's really good at killing Norwalk virus. Norwalk virus. The Norwalk. Okay. Yeah. And AIDS. Broad AIDS. spectrum of, yeah. Okay. Well, avian, that's good. Avian and bird flu. Not just <laughs> not just the avian flu and not just the bird flu, but they've got it, hmm. they list both of them. Hmm. I, that, might, uh, that might give me some pauses to their the depth of their knowledge of microbiology. Well, well, well. Yep. Um, so anyway, thanks for, uh, for highlighting that deep cooler. Uh, appreciate that uh, piece of info. Yeah. Uh, so, so let's, Ben, let's move to some feedback from, uh, listener, uh, deep Griswold, um, yes. who, who writes, uh, he says, I was listening through the back catalog a couple of weeks ago when one of you read some statistics from FDA that included a list of foodborne pathogens, one of which was called Yersinia. Um, uh, I was operating a table saw at the time and thus failed to take note of the exact context or episode number. Well, good. I, I'm really, I'm really glad, uh, deep Griswold that you did not, um, cut off a finger with a table saw, uh, but because you were distracted, um, uh, he goes on to write, uh, I'm familiar with Yersinia pestis for obvious reasons. Uh, cursory Googling indicates that this is probably Yersinia enterocolitica and you're exactly right. Um, which is a different species. Um, uh, apparently, this microorganism is significant enough for FDA to mention it, but I've never heard of it before, and I don't recall it ever coming up on the podcast. What is this thing? How does it enter the food supply? What does it do? <laughs> what What does it do, Ben? What does, what it, does, do? does it do? Um, and does the consumer need to be concerned about it? And so... Um, this gave me a chance to actually think about some stuff that we did uh, way back in the day. Uh, we've, we've had a flashback to 2002 in my career, but this time we'll flash back to uh, the early 1990s where I uh, published a paper with uh, Susan Albert, who went on to get a degree in nutrition and also a degree in statistics. Um, and that paper was modeling the growth of Yersinia enterocolitica. And, and the reason why uh, we chose to do it was it's a psychotrophic organism, much like listeria. Uh, in fact, Yersinia enterocolitica grows at 
uh, even lower temperatures than uh, Listeria monocytogenes. And, and actually, the, the full title of our paper, um, which was published um, in... Hmm, doesn't say the year, uh, uh, was published in the early 1990s, uh, evaluation of data transformations used with the square root and school field models for predicting bacterial growth rate. So um, as, as, uh, as, as I was uh, dissing the, the quality, uh, this is from 1992, dissing the quality of the 2002 paper in 1992, I knew even less. Um, and this paper is full of a lot of really complicated mathematical equations, which uh, I did uh, try to keep out of my papers uh, these days because I think it, it, it affects the uh, ability of people to, to see what's going on and it might be a little intimidating. So, uh, but that's a, it's a neat piece of work. Um, if you ever hear uh, about um, a microorganism that you don't know anything about, uh, the first place that I would, a foodborne organism, the first place that I would go and I recommend that people go is something called the Bad Bug Book. And the Bad Bug Book is a PDF file. It's on uh, FDA's website. We will link to it. And it has just lots of information from a, from a variety, and it's written by uh, FDA experts on a variety of microorganisms. Uh, it is a PDF, but it does have uh, links in it, so you can fairly easily find uh, information on Yersinia anaerocolitica. And if you if you go to the Bad Bug Book and you look up stuff about Yersinia anaerocolitica, uh, the first sentence says uh, as follows, food and water contaminated with this bacterium, Yersinia, more properly Yersinia anaerocolitica, can make people sick. Among the foods that have been linked to illness from Yersinia are pork, uh, including chitterlings, which are <laughs> sometimes called chitlins. I think they're always called chitlins. I know. I got. I have I've a never heard anyone call them chitterlings. Oh, oh, I've called them chitterlings. And oh, have you? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so well, so I called them chitterlings because I did because when I moved to North Carolina, I have never <laughs> ever once in my life heard of chitlins. I had no idea oh. what they were. Um, I don't like. I don't think that it's a, a common food that 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 I would see in in Ontario. And so I, I was, you know, doing something and um, someone asked a question about it or, or you know, said, we, we, you know, we have this pamphlet on safe uh, chitterling, you know, someone sent me an email, safe chitterling uh, preparation. And I went to one of my colleagues, um, a, um, Sarah Kirby, who you know from, from Twitter, and I was like, what are, like, what are they talking about? What are, what are, chitterlings and she could not stop laughing um at me. uh and then and then then went to um you know then uh nutrition specialist now department head carolyn dunn and told her the story and then they both laughed at me um so i am one of the you know i i wasn't familiar with them uh, at all but but it's i mean from a chitlin standpoint um it you know it's probably what we would associate um um uh, this pathogen with the most. Uh, so CDC estimates 117,000 illnesses and 640 hospitalizations and 35 deaths in the U S every year, um, from the, from Yersinia, uh, enterocolitica, colitica, colitica, enterocolitica, enterocolitica. Yeah, and 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 I I looked at uh, Scallon et al. and it, the number of cases a year from uh, Yersinia enterocolitica is about uh, the little bit less than Shigella, um, so and it's about an order of magnitude less than Salmonella. So it's definitely there. It definitely causes illnesses, uh, but it's not it's not one of the the big ones. Um, and the other paper that I, I really want to link to is a really interesting paper that um, uh, I I did not realize that uh, uh, it was so old uh, because it, it's one of the sort of the canonical papers that I think about when I think about Yersinia and chitlins especially. Um, and the title of the article is Yersinia enterocolitica, 
Yersinia enterocolitica O3, infections in children, infants and children associated with a household preparation of chitterlings. And so basically uh, what they did in this study was they did, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a particular um, uh, outbreak, or actually maybe it's not an outbreak, maybe it's sort of a, a case control study. But anyway, um, what they discovered was that it was kids in the households where chitlins were being prepared. And it wasn't, it wasn't that uh, the kids were getting sick from eating the food. It was just that the the, the process of preparing chitlins, which are basically um, fried pig intestines, right, um, it is such that it just spreads the contamination around the kitchen. And so it, the kids were getting sick uh, because they were in that contaminated uh, kitchen environment. And so um, anyway, wow. if you like if you like yeah. that kind of thing, um, it's it's quite it's quite an interesting um, uh, quite an interesting um, uh, story to read. And 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 it is it also I have to say it is uh, an ethnic food. And so the the particular story that's recounted in this New England Journal of Medicine article is um, eight cases of Yersinia Yersinia enterocolitica gastroenteritis in black infants and children um, reported to the Division of Public Health uh, in Georgia, and and those uh, those cases occurred between November 1st and December 13th of 1988. And they did again, they did sort of an investigation, and they and they figured out what was going on. So so interesting uh, detective work there from the folks uh, in Georgia. Um, yeah, yeah, that was the, very very cool. Um, one, so before we leave Yersinia, um, there was some Yersinia that popped up in 2014 as well um, in New Zealand, and it was not, uh, uh, it, it was a different uh, strain. It was uh, Yersinia pseudotuberculosis, and it was linked. Um, this, and I, I, I will get this wrong. I'm reading a food safety news article, and I think that a um, friend of the podcast, uh, Roger Cook, has more information on this. And we know we have a couple of listeners in New Zealand, so maybe we'll get a little more feedback from them on this. But the food safety news article um, highlighted uh, likely prepackaged carrots and lettuce were, were to blame for it. But I remember Roger at IAFP the following year telling me that there was more to this story than, than what was reported. So hopefully we get – now it's, time has passed and he can tell us more like it might it might have been something else yeah interesting so this yeah this is a 2004 uh, outbreak 14 2014 uh, 14 rather yeah yeah you and lettuce cause outbreak in bay yeah yeah yep 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 a great day for bay great great day for <laughs> for yersinia bay um <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's that's such a good episode. I, there's really so is. much to like. Was that one of the ones that you said was your favorite episode? Um, La- Lazik. Well, yeah, Lazik yeah. is fantastic. Uh, and then I, I really like um, the uh, I, I like the first episode of season two, the Ag Hall, uh, oh, yes. fuss at, at the Ag Hall, um, and then. Um, I, so really, you now where are you right now? We're talking about Letterkenny, by the way. By the yeah, way, we'll we'll link we'll link to the to the IMDb page for uh, or the Wikipedia page for Letterkenny, which is a show about uh, uh, hicks uh, and skids and uh, hockey, players hockey players and uh, natives. Right? Yep. Yep. Uh, in in Letterkenny. So um, yeah, and so I am um, in season. Whichever uh, end of season five, beginning of season six, and so oh, end, okay, season You're getting... five, end of season five, um, uh, ends with um, uh, uh, okay, end of season five, bo- uh, bouquet biche, uh, 
no, wait, no, that's not right. That can't be right. Uh, oh, no, sorry, end of season four. Okay. Which is which is Great Day for Thunder Bay, the episode we just yes. talked about. Great Day, right? yeah. So, and so then you're... I just, just started watching uh, the beginning of season five, which apparently ends with where season four uh, begins where season four ends because at the end of season four there's fireworks going off they're at the the party for the bay brothers and then uh the next one is um it opens with um uh fireworks uh, yes so, yeah so so let me let me tell you that season five as a as a whole might be the best wow okay. um so yeah you you've got we don't fight at weddings coming up uh, yep. And then um, friend of the friend of the show, uh, Michael Bazzacco, uh really likes Hard Right Jay, uh, um, it, where the where Wikipedia says an out of towner causes a ruckus in Letterkenny, and he's a um, a, a, a right wing uh, fun, fundamentalist uh, um, <laughs> person. Um, the Letterkenny spelling bee, which is phenomenal, and then my maybe my favorite. Uh, all-time episode is Boke Bish, um, okay. which is the last uh, episode, uh, which the uh, Wikipedia says the Hicks and hockey players travel to Quebec or Quebec or Quebec uh, <laughs> for Anique's uh, pre-wedding party, um, and so it's another uh, it's another good one. Um, and and then you're you're really gonna like, I think, because you're doing this in in real time. So so season six is fine. Season seven has a running storyline about an agricultural call-in show. Call-in show. Oh. And 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 it is uh yeah it's called Crack an Egg. Uh and, and anyway there's there yeah so I, I should. I, I'm almost finished. I've I've been rewatching a show called The League, which is about uh, nominally about fantasy football, uh, but more just about like uh, you know it's a it's a buddies guy show um, about uh, um, you know being in a fantasy football league. But it's I, it's definitely not for everybody. It's it's along the same lines as Letterkenny, but the the characters are not nearly as endearing. Um, yeah. But I I like the show, and, and so I've been rewatching that, um, and and I think I may have to go rewatch all of Letterkenny um, next. Yeah, and the the most the mo- and I'm learning so much, uh, right? Like, but the but the most recent one that I learned, which which comes up in this this last episode, but it came up earlier as well, is Chell. Chell, like, yeah, the like world, world like, of Chell. Like, 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 and I was amazed that I could figure out because if you if you if you just sort of Google is really quite amazing, <laughs> but you just Google Chell Letter Kenny, and you'll you can find out what Chell is. Yep, yep. Uh, I'm, let me tell you, there's, there's a lot of chell that goes on in my house. <laughs> I bet there is. There's a lot of, a lot of chell. Uh, I, I, I have some, uh, I, I've got some chell, uh, chell lined up planned for next week on, on, uh, Thanksgiving break here. We're going to, we, we have chell, we just, just purchased uh, chell 20. So, uh, we're all about the chell. Uh, it's NHL, uh, hockey for, uh, game consoles for those who don't know. Um, so I don't know if this has come up in any of the letter Kenny's, um, but there is a cold open to one of them that that was a video uh, on YouTube that talks about the three places that are closed on Christmas Day, um, which are Tim's, McDonald's, and the beer store. Uh, Tim's, McDonald's, and the beer store are all closed on uh, on Christmas Day, and and Wayne says, and that's just about your whole life there, bud. And that is true. That's basically the town that I grew up in. Is that Tim's, McDonald's, and the beer store are all closed on Christmas Day? Nice. Uh, all right. Um, so talked talked about Yersinia. Uh, oh, here's here's a good one. Um, <laughs> uh, so this was sent to us uh, from uh, from Deep Possum, uh, and uh, it's a it's a link to Snopes, which is which is a great one. 
Uh, and, and the title is, is from the Associated Press on November, 9, uh, November 19th, uh, Dateline Raleigh. Uh, headline is, Group Hopes to Prevent Opossum Dropping on New Year's Eve. Uh, the practice involves suspending an opossum in a transparent box on New Year's Eve and slowly lowering it to the ground as people count down to midnight. Um, uh, article goes, uh, movement is growing in North Carolina to prevent the act of a so-called opossum dropping. The practice involves suspending this, uh, this possum. Uh, Raleigh News and Observer reported that a western North Carolina town had conducted the uh, opossum drops for 24 years. Brasstown in Clay County dropped its last opossum in 2018, but the organization Animal Help Now wants to prevent anyone from doing it elsewhere. That will require a change to state law that allows people to do anything they want to opossums for five days each year. Isn't that crazy? Um, the group started a petition, gathered around 160,000 signatures before the petition closed. The group says it's continuing its legislative efforts. Uh, Don, I just want to set the record straight here. Um, I am very much opposed to a possum dropping. I don't care whether it's in a glass box, a plastic box, any sort of box. Don't think that we need to be catching opossums, possums as they're known here, putting them in anything, and then using them for our entertainment. I'm fine to let the ugly, um, somewhat nasty possums roam free, and let's not. Uh, I don't think they need to be integrated into our New Year's Eve celebrations. Right, and just to be clear, like they're not being harmed; they're just being ah, detained and, come on. and slowly, slowly dropped, and perhaps traumatized. Right, right. Which, let's yes, let's. Yeah. let's I'm I'm uh, I'm not I'm not someone who would say that I'm an an animal rights advocate. Uh, well, no, I'm not an activist. I'm an advocate, and I, I don't think that putting any sort of animal in a box and and then everyone cheering at them that's, that's harming them somewhat. There is some traumatization that I would yes. expect. Yes, and, and I, I think this is – and then again, my, my comment to Deep Possum is I wonder what they call DGENs from upcountry <laughs> in North Carolina, which is another letter Kenny reference. Um, uh, but, but Ben, like you live in North Carolina and you're familiar with DGENs from upcountry from your time in Ontario, I'm sure. So wh what, would, what would you call a DGEN from upcountry in North Carolina? I don't know. I'm not getting into that conversation. <laughs> I would just call them a North Carolinian. Uh, oh, my. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I'm not sure. I, I live in Raleigh, the like liberal bastion uh, bubble uh, where, where no one really is from North Carolina. It's always amazing to me where, where I, I know people socially. Um, and, and they say, oh yeah, my, my, my wife or, or my husband went to middle school or, or, um, elementary school that my kid went to because almost nobody is from here, um, uh, that, that I know. So, uh, but when you get into, uh, uh, brass, uh, brass town in, in Clay County, um, I think, uh, you might have a lot of people that, uh, that are just into possum dropping <laughs> possum droppers. That's what they call the DGENs from our country. Oh, <laughs> We're gonna don't email Don. Email, don't email me. Email Don. <laughs> um, all right. So that was from Deep Possum. Uh, we talked about uh, FDA. Oh, 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 Don, Don. Oh, this is. There's not a good link on this, but um, we tweeted back and forth uh, about something that. Uh, uh, let me see if I can find it. About uh, Don. Did you know your AirPods have bacteria on them? Um, I. You know, Ben. I'm pretty sure. That pretty much everything has bacteria on it. Uh, I'm I'm a, I'm a I'm I'm not a I'm, I'm a food microbiologist. I'm not a a thing microbiologist, but I'm pretty sure there's a thin veneer of bacteria over just about everything. Oh, there is there. So there, and I'll see if I can find this back in my tweets. Um, but there is a uh, 
um, local uh, NC State uh, microbiology professor who had a fantastic quote um, in an article that basically said, bacteria is everywhere. <laughs> like, we would expect to find it. And it wasn't me. Like, sorry, I, yeah. didn't, I didn't mean to make it sound like there was this fabulous person um, who somehow was me um, that said that. Uh, but um, very, very much, I'm not worried about um, my... Um, uh, I'm not not worried about my uh, bacteria on my uh, AirPods or anything else, and that that led to people saying that they always uh, autoclave their their AirBuds, which was also great. Um, so anyway, I can't find it right now. Um, what uh, what what else what else do you want to talk about? Well, I was just trying to find a. <clears throat> I was alluding to. Uh, I was alluding to the quote that the world is covered by a thin layer of feces, which I'm trying to find the uh, origin of, and I'm not able to do. So, um, yeah. So uh, I don't know, Ben. Um, what should we talk about? Um, <laughs> have we have we reached the end of the series? Is this, <laughs> is this it? We just got to the point where we just there's nothing else to talk about. Uh, so, no. so here, here, here's a, here's a good one. So, uh, so this is from, um, uh, listener Scott who has a whole bunch of nicknames. Um, uh, and he says, I just got a, did we talk about this? A robo dial from my local supermarket about a recall of a wide range of man's vegetable products. Uh, not, that's not to be confused with Merlin man, but, uh, man's vegetable products, uh, score one for loyalty cards, enhancing food safety. Uh, he says this concern for the concern for this recall is Listeria monocytogenes. Uh, just our luck. We serve those vegetables at a small party this weekend. Um, is this sounding familiar at all? No. Well, I mean, it's familiar because I read it in the, okay. in the pre, um, in, in our pre-show. <laughs> right. Um, so, uh, so CDC's listeria page says people with invasive listeriosis usually report symptoms starting one to four weeks after eating food contaminated with listeria. Some people have reported symptoms starting as late as 70 days after exposure or as early as the same day of exposure. I will email the CDC info to everyone who was at the party, but what I want to make sure I've got this right, they may not have symptoms for 10 weeks. I would love to have access to a lab that could test the leftovers in our fridge to tell us if we really serve listeria monostogenes to our guests. Having this looming over for us for 70 days is awful. Should guests over 65 years of age notify their doctors that they might have been exposed, even if they're asymptomatic now? Um, oh, this is deep, deep as a deep stack. Deep stack, um, yeah. Um, uh, and uh, yeah, so so th this this is really interesting. Um, so a few comments, and then I'll, I'll let you I'll let you chime in. Um, even if um, uh, DeepStack had access to a lab um, and tested the leftovers. Uh, the the leftovers might not have listeria because there might not have been listeria in any of it. Um, there might have also been listeria in what people ate <clears throat> and not in the leftovers. So, and then if you found a listeria positive in the leftovers, what would that tell you anyway? Any more than you knew already? Maybe a little higher certainty that they were exposed. Um, uh, the the good news here, and 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 this I think this is definitely good news, is that this is a recall and not an outbreak, right? And we have listeria recalls all the time, and in many cases there are never any reported illnesses. And we've talked about before on the podcast that listeria is an organism that takes a relatively high dose to cause illness. It's way way higher uh, than Salmonella or pathogenic E. coli or things like norovirus. And so you probably need to ingest a pretty good dose, even if you're susceptible and immunocompromised. Um, so, uh, 
yeah. So, uh, so yeah. So, so I did, I did some, I did some math for uh, another project that you and I are working on and I was able to go back and dig out that math. So let's, let's say that, uh, based on our methodology, we can detect as little as a single cell in 25 grams. Uh, let's say that we knew for a fact that we had a single cell in a 25 gram serving of those vegetables. The chance of somebody getting sick from that serving that 25 gram serving with a single cell is about one in eight million. So we'd have to feed uh, eight million people one listeria before we'd see one uh, one illness. So so is there a chance that uh, uh, deep stacks guests are going to get sick? Absolutely. Um, would I bet on it? I would absolutely not bet on it. The odds are just way way too low. Um, <clears throat> And I think he's taking the right approach, right? He's informing his guests that there was a risk that they were exposed and they should be alert for the symptoms at the first. My advice is at the first sign of symptoms, they should go see a doctor. If they have serious symptoms, they should go to the emergency room. And in either case, they should tell the doctor that they think they might have been exposed to listeria. So uh, anyway, uh, odds, uh, the, the odds are probably greater um, of those uh, guests being injured in a car accident in the next 70 days than the odds are of them uh, actually getting salmonella. So that, that's that's my two cents on that. Right, with no judgment on their driving. It's a, no, it's no, other, no judgment. Yeah. No, just just simple probabilities. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, no, and, and I, I mean, I think you nailed it. And this, it, Deep Sat brings up um, uh, something that's worth talking about, and and it's um, how do we frame these messages so that it's that it's actionable for someone, and that they're not having something looming over their head um, uh, for seventy days. And and, and you know, I, I, I liked your answer. Um, especially, um, I guess, um, deflecting the idea of, okay, should I go to my doctor now? No, I think the important part is if you, if you do start to have symptoms that you go to your doctor and say, I've, I have eaten some recalled, you know, uh, foods that were recalled for listeria. So that, that, that goes into part of the diagnosis discussion. Um, and, and that's the, like, that this is uh, and and I talked to Bill Holman a little bit about this a, a couple of years ago, um, and and I think we've got a ways to go when it comes to public health messaging. Um, and actually, I'll, I'll I'll say something that um, one of my colleagues here, Andy Binder, um, has has talked about a little bit when it comes to outbreak communication or even safe handling instructions on on foods. We have the there's a duty to communicate this right. Like it, we have information, we have a duty to communicate it. Um, it's oftentimes. A, a regulatory communication stops there. What we're not asking is, what's the best way to communicate this? How how should we tell people about it? So A, they don't panic, but but B, they do something uh, if if necessary. And and bringing in the field of risk communication as we're developing all of these messages um, is really is really important. And and if you look at the recall. Um, guidance or how do you how do you conduct a recall um, from from you know you you pick you pick the the place um, that's providing information to uh, the food industry um, about you know recall food safety stuff. Oops, I should always tell, turn my phone off, right? Um, uh, you, you you it doesn't you know you pick you pick the place. They're, they are not. Um, there's not a lot of messaging in the recall manuals on uh, consulting a risk communication specialist on how to do this right, right? Like it's all about the duty of information. Um, and so, and, and here's the, you know, here becomes the fallout. Like it all seems good when you, when you share it with people. 
because um, it's something that you should do, but do you need to do it in a way that, that keeps risk communication in mind? Yes, absolutely. And so oh, speaking of risk communication, let's just go back and close the loop on on earbuds, right? Uh, because the only thing I can find is this, the, sto- the, the link, the, 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 the PDF didn't properly generate, but if you Google it, you can find the link to the story. And, and basically, the headline says, common tech accessory likely to blame for uptick in infections, doctors say. Yeah, well, yeah. you read down into the story, um, uh, not keeping your headphones and your ears clean could lead to an ear infection, according to Adriana Salini, a physician assistant with fast med urgent care. So she's not a doctor. She's a physician's assistant. Okay. Um, that's what we're, here's a quote from her. That's what we're seeing a lot of adults coming in with. She said that there has been an increase in patients coming in with symptoms of outer ear infections. And one thing many of those patients have in common using headphones that go inside their ears. So that's, that's one person at one place saying that they think this is the reason why they're seeing more ear infections. Yeah. That's, I don't know, Ben, if you know um, how people do science, but this is not science. This is this is pretty much anecdotal <laughs> evidence. Um, and then, of course, uh, they they uh, the the ABC 11 turned to experts at North Carolina State University. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, and a microbiologist there swabbed headphones and he found bacteria because <laughs> so, there's bacteria but, everywhere. But again, th- that comment from the microbiologist is great. Finding bacteria on earbuds or your skin is perfectly normal. So anyway, <laughs> right. Finally, we've got a good we've got a good message on this. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, um, we had a couple of um, let me see what do we what else we got here? Okay, so you put something in here, and I don't know. I, I'm interested in this is something you wanted to talk about, but you put in a uh, um, a PDF of a re- reviewer response to uh, a paper that you wrote on called the quantification of Salmonella enterica transfer between tomato soil and plastic mulch. Was that was that on purpose? Um, where did I see this? It was, it's called your submission. You put it in on oh. October 31st. <laughs> um, were there some good no, reviewer comments that I you think, wanted to talk about? No, I think Dang. I think I think I put that there by accident. Um, I, you know, I generate a lot of PDFs and I throw them into folders, and sometimes things are pointing at the wrong folder. But um, no, I didn't really have anything to talk about. I I just hope. I mean, anyway, but reviewers are idiots, and we, <laughs> they should just just get out of the way and let me publish my stuff. Yeah. So no, that that was not supposed to be there. I apologize. That's too bad. I thought you were, I thought you were going to give me some scathing stuff about like we were going to talk about reviewer number two. No, they're they're all idiots, all of them, each one of them. Um, I so I you know we we have like talked about reviewing papers a little bit um, in in our writing buddies uh, group, um, and and then I've seen um, some. So I've got something to talk about on this. I was thinking about. Um, it, I've seen some some Twitter comments, especially from young researchers and not people in our field, um, but talking about like. It's kind of devastating to get a really bad review sometimes, and and we should keep in mind that actual people are reading our reviews um, when we send them out. And and I I try to be I really do try to be mindful of that. I also sometimes just get so fed up with the paper that I I do become a dick. Um, and, and and I and I don't like I'm part of the problem and not the solution. I guess on this, and I guess. What I'm what I'm trying to do is be constructive, but sometimes there's just like stuff there that is it's careless. It's not. I guess if there was a 
an issue related to um, is this the right approach to take to answer this question? I, I'm I'm very much not like a dick about that. Like, oh, this is the wrong approach. Um, but but I I do you know when when um, like I, I asked you for some help on a, on a on a paper recently where I literally could not. I, and it might have, I, and I said the, like said this in a text, either, um, either I'm stupid, which is a possibility, you know, like, and I'm just not getting this, or this is really, um, poorly written and poorly designed and there's no in between, right? There's no, like I'm getting half of this. Um, and, and so, so as a reviewer, sometimes I, I think about that, like I, I, I think about reviewing for the things that I'm very comfortable with and that I know and not reviewing so much on things that I just don't do. Um, but, but on those things that I don't do, if they're not communicated clearly, or I can't understand exactly what someone was doing, not because I don't understand the jargon, but I, I can't reason this out in a, and sketch it out in my mind of like, they did this, they did this, they did this. I don't know what's in all three of those boxes, the technical side of things, but I understand how they got to the end. Um, I, I, I try to, I, I don't know. I'm just trying not to be a dick when I review stuff. Yeah. And, you know, and we had an interesting email come across our desk about, um, we shouldn't use the criticism. This needs to be reviewed by a native English speaker. Right. Um, no, it just needs to be, have the English corrected. Right. You don't, right, you, right. You, could, you don't have to be a native English speaker to be able to correct someone's English. And, and it is hard if it's something that's maybe at the periphery of your, ex, your expertise and, um, and, and, it, and there are some problems with the language and you don't, you don't want to be a jerk about it, but at the same time, you don't want to publish something, um, if it's just not good science. Right. And I think in this particular case, this was, you know, th there is a tendency for people who, and again, you I can point to my, my 1992 article with all those equations in it, like to be over the top in terms of mathematics. Yeah. Um, and and th and that doesn't that do I've learned through 30 years of doing this that doesn't help people access your work. I mean, yeah, you should understand the math and the stats behind it, and um, but but that should the, what should be front and center is again. To, 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 and I keep, I've taken to using this, which I, I know I learned from you. What's the story, right? And the stuff that we're doing with with Meg right now, with looking at uh, analysis of that data, it's like yeah, yeah, I can we can do the modeling, we can do the figures, but what's the story, right? What's the point that we're trying to convey? And the math and the stats and the the tables and the figures, they all support that, but but the story comes first, right? Right, right, right. And until you have all that in place, you don't know what the story is. But once you have the story, then all of that just supports it. So well, and and I mean, this is the thing about. Um, that I, that really draws me to, to science is that I'm going to look at something and think about it in a different way than you are and think about it in a different way that Meg is. And, and our, our story might be on our own. We might get 75% of the same story, right? These are the things that we're all seeing, but we're all going to add something else that comes from our experience or looking at the data in a different way or handling it. Um, you know, if I'm, if I'm not super close to the analysis, but I see some stuff, oh, here's how I think this, how we could use this, or this is what it means. Um, and that's you know, that for the, for people outside of the world of science, that's probably frustrating, right? Like they want science says, and, and, and we, I mean, the, there are times when, when I'm teaching a workshop and I ask people like, why, why do we cook? Uh, turkey, why do we recommend cooking turkey to 165 degrees? And people will come up, you know, they'll guess through a couple of things, and then I give them the very cagey and smug answer of, no, it's because of science. 
Um, right. Like, and then, and, and then explain to them what I, what I mean by that. But, but it's not, um, so much of what we do is not, is not definitive. It's, we are, we are collecting data and looking at that data from different viewpoints and starting to tell stories about it. And sometimes those stories are going to be different and even looking at the, at the same data. And, and I mean, just, you know, to keep it with Turkey and, and Thanksgiving and, and holidays and stuff, um, let's just look at, um, why Canada, uh, recommends 180 degrees to cook uh, poultry too. Well, the U.S. recommends 165 degrees. I mean, we're using relatively the same data. Um, the 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 interpretation is slightly different. Um, and 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 this this the I think the fun part of the story is to tell how we how those those differences uh, were arrived at. But um, but it, but it's no it's it's not like oh this is all just you know it's, it's because science says and it's all it's all one answer. Right. Well, and it's again, it's one thing that we'd love to talk about in this podcast, which is the difference between risk assessment and risk management. Right. And so risk assessment says, what are the data? Risk management is what do you do about it? Yep. And what you do about it apparently is different um, if you have different people in Canada making a different decision. Right. And that's and that's OK. Right. We should we should understand what the science is that under, that supports it. And then we should understand why they arrived at at, at two different two different numbers. I thought you were going to explain why Canadian Thanksgiving is on a different day. No, it's start with all that. <laughs> no, well, it's because we have Boxing Day. Because we can't have Thanksgiving so close to Boxing Day, which is our other favorite uh, time of year. Speaking of speaking of boxing, I have to and coming back to Letter Kenny, and then I, and then I, I got one I got one more food safety thing I want to talk about. What I love on Letter Kenny is these guys drink to excess. They they get in fights all the time. They're they're always like punching each other out, and no one ever gets hurt. No, right? no, no one ever has um, you know is uh, ha, ha, has blood. They never get a, a split lip. A swollen eye. I mean, one time the guys were a little bit hungover, but but it was just, anyway. The whole thing was just was was quite uh, was quite fun. So anyway, I just have to call that out about Letter Kenny. Um, <clears throat> what I want to talk about now, and I don't I don't think we want to give this person any publicity, but let's say they're just someone who um, uh, uh, coaches people about food safety, um, and and they. Uh, this person has questions about uh, what safety features do seafood processors, restaurants have to follow um, uh, about ciguatera. And because this person has a friend in the locks and smoked salmon business. And um, uh, this was sent to me by a, a colleague, uh, Bill Hallman, that we've mentioned. And I, I responded and I said, ciguatera uh, is confined to reef fish and salmon are not reef fish. Uh, therefore, there's no risk of ciguatera. Which is, you know, I thought that was a pretty good answer. Right, right. Um, the response, uh, thank you for your response, for your consideration. I will read directly from the email <laughs> message. Commercial fish feed, aquaculture, farmed fish fed on a diet of feed pellets. Do we have an association between mad cows being fed dead ancestors and angry salmon? Can nature strike back? Your thoughts are greatly appreciated. Um. <laughs> I, um, anyway, I, I responded and this person says, um, you know, I postulate there may be a transfer of toxins that could spread through the salmon community. You may want to look into my theory theory and see if it sticks. I might. Um, I, I might, um, I, I, but I might not. I might also just send the message to my friends 
in extension and 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 claim victory for the weird extension question of the week. So well, um, so Sigwaterra so is a real problem, um, uh, but it is confined to reef fish, and so uh, you're probably not going to get it from salmon, um, uh, no matter how those salmon are farmed. I like I like angry salmon, mad cows and angry salmon. Um, <laughs> Uh, you, you, you did bury what I think is the lead to the story, which is the response that you have, um, into one of the questions, uh, about can nature strike back? And your response is nature may or may not strike back, but karma is real. Well, yeah, yeah. Karma is real. I love it. That's such a great answer. Um, <laughs> and then, and then, uh, and then that, the response to, to that was mad cow is mad cow. My theory is similar. Uh, you should yep. look. You should look into this. You might want to look into my theory and see if it sticks. I might, but you know, there's a lot of theories I could look into, uh, and I'm a pretty busy guy, so I, I you know, I, I prob- I'm just gonna say I'm probably not gonna look into that theory. Put it on the list. We'll put it on the theory uh, list. Well, okay, put it on the theory list. Yeah, yeah. I'm not. I mean, I've, I mean, never get to the list, but it's there. It's on there. Uh, karma's real, Don. Nature may strike back, but karma's real. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that's a show. I think so. Um, well, um, thanks, uh, for listening this long. Um, hopefully you've had, uh, maybe four walks, uh, up to now as you've listened to us. Um, and, uh, check us out on, uh, the internets at, uh, food safety doc, uh, food Um, you can find the podcast all over the place. Uh, but if you're listening to it, you've already found it. Um, and, uh, I think that's it. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. still okay so we've got two weeks from today and um and we're still on for uh risky or not after writing buddies on the second right yes okay so what does um i think i'll be home so what does the 6th of december look like or do we already ask a talk about that i can't do anything on the 
Um, the third, fourth, and fifth. The third, I'm flying to Grand Rapids in the afternoon, and then I'll be there on the fourth all day, and then I'm coming back on the fifth. Okay. Um, let me get to my calendar. <clears throat> and December 6th, by the way, I have a note. It is. It says, wear my Outbreak shirt for Bill Keen's birthday. So it's, <laughs> it's Bill Keen's birthday, and we're going to wear Outbreak shirts. Nice. I might watch um, Outbreak. On National Outbreak Day, um, so I uh, I have uh, so Fridays are not generally right. good for They're me. Not good I've for got you. a fac- I've got a faculty meeting that day, um, and then the following week, uh, actually, we are going to be together in Louisville, right? We are rec- recording a live podcast on the um, on the tenth. Uh, so, do we want to? Is that our next podcast? If, uh, if yeah, because I'm the only other time I could do it. I really can't. It was like, it's December 2nd. Yeah. So, uh, uh, oh, oh, I mean, after risky or not. Yeah. Instead of risky or not. Right. Well, no, I mean, after uh, it would have to be like two to four or something. Yeah. That's okay. We let, let's schedule, let's schedule something for the week of the 16th. Okay. Yeah. Perfect. So week of the 16th, I could do anytime before 1 PM on the 16th. Okay. Um, uh, let's do uh, 10 a.m. Yep. Is that good for you? Like that? Yeah. Yeah. I'm. 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 Only thing I've got is something in the afternoon that I have to be on campus for. So, but I can. I can go in. And we can. I can record um, in the morning. It'd be fine. Okay. Um, 16th. Two nine 16th. Okay. Good. And I've got yeah I've I've got ten to one, and that's two hundred. Or no, it I is. It'll be two it is. No, it's gonna be two hundred one. No. Because oh, 200, oh, oh my because gosh, two hundred's gonna be Louisville live. We're together for the two hundredth. Nice. We we're gonna have to do something special. I don't. I maybe I'll I'll write a. I'll, I'm gonna write a note in all sharpie that says 200, 200, 200, um, and then hold it up. Uh, FST two hundred one. All right. And then this one is mine. Yes. And, uh, okay. I'm going to start messing around with it right now. Sounds good. I, I've got the show notes. I'm going to drop them in and I'll rename the, uh, folders and we're good to go. Oh, I, I got some, I got, I put some titles. I, I was taken to, to opening a text file where I can right. drop the show notes later and uh, put the titles. So I tried to do that and then I just stopped doing that today. <laughs> so I'm glad you did it. Yep. Okay. I will, right. uh, I'll talk to you later. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.